Hey guys, this is Jason Barr, Babs' crippled boyfriend that she forgets about. Happy two-year anniversary, Batgirl to Oracle. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Love is a many splendid thing. What? Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. Please don't start that again. All what? you need is love. A girl has got to eat. All you need is love. She'll end up on the streets. All you need <laughs> is love. Love is just a game. I was made for loving you, baby. You were made for loving me. The only way of loving me, baby, is to pay a lovely fee. Just one night, just one night. There's no way, cause you can't pay. In the name of love, one night in the name of love. You crazy fool, I won't give in to you. Don't leave me this way. I can't survive without your sweet love, oh baby, don't leave me this way. So, Wete, I am your host, Stella, and this is Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 32.5, part two. I'm calling this Shippers Galore. We will soon find out why. Uh, again, a part of the, the big, spectacular two-year anniversary show for December MMXI. Episode 32.5 is brought to you by this public service announcement. Boy, what a great campsite. Yeah, here's more wood for the fire. Yeah, no, my balls are on fire. Run for the stream. Don't run. Here, let me wrap this around you. You okay? Lucky thing you were around, spirit. Lucky thing you didn't run. Remember, running only makes the fire worse. If your clothes catch fire, wrap yourself in a rug or blanket. And roll on the ground to smother the flames. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Batgirl to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are February's Batgirl number 7 and Birds of Prey number 7, both for $2.69. So, if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Again, it is such a pleasure to be sitting here all in one booth with the the great uh, sensual aroma of Starbucks coffee kind of 
wafting over us and baked goods right next to us. And I'm joined by Josh Bertoni and Donovan Morgan Grant. I thought you said the sensual because... aroma of us. <laughs> that would be shipperific. Yeah, I don't even know. I'm here because for... I'm here because for Christmas I got a talking motorcycle that told me get on Skype with Donovan and Stella right now. Oh boy. So, and it's always so that's good what to, I did. Yeah, it's always good to trust those things. You know, stranger danger, who heard of that? Just hop on the <laughs> bike. So, yeah, speaking of Christmas, though, I mean, we just happened, uh, happened by Christmas. So, I guess really quickly, were there any big gifts that stood out for you or things that you were really excited about? This girl who I know, she sent me um, an Amazon gift card with a really, really nice, heartwarming message. That was probably uh, the best gift of all. You stole it from me. Oh, <laughs> I, I wasn't the... looking for any any sorts of, yeah. I had the same thing from the same girl. But I, don't, oh, I forgot her what? name. What? Oh, boy. Yeah. What? You guys found out. I didn't mean for it to be this way. What you going to do about it, huh? Huh? Oh. Are, are there any, any other... Uh, gifts that you really enjoyed or, or bat centric gifts or comic centric gifts i got a uh, marvel comics silver age calendar which is really nice looking Ooh. um that's uh and, and some other volumes as well of uh other comics but that's like the main of the big two it's pretty mm-hmm. nice most of my gifts were uh, uh prepaid uh deposits for my cruise that i'm going on in february oh and that's always good yeah to have oh yeah your way paid yeah for sure yeah, I think I think I might meet uh, Carl there. <laughs> you mean Superboy? Oh my gosh! I, I I paid that with a point. Oh yeah. Well, now you know, I guess. Well, if Cass is there, that may be even more worthwhile. Or Babs, Babs. Cass there, there, I'm going. Yeah, if Babs is there, I'm going. Over the Christmas break, I took the kids to see the Chipmunks movie, and like the Chipmunks go on a cruise at the beginning of the movie. Oh boy. But the but but they get attached to a kite and they like fly off into the ocean. <laughs> Oh boy. And end up on a deserted island. Yes, really. Um, I did let's see, I guess one of the, the comic oriented things that I got, I got a Spider Man Hallmark ornament. I'm I'm big into the the ornaments that are let's see, either Looney Tune, superhero or moose centric. So got a, a Spider Man one. And the big one that was like a total shock. I had no idea what this box was. I thought it was a vacuum cleaner because my father keeps saying that he's going to get me a vacuum cleaner for my apartment. Open it up. The complete series of Lost. I was so shocked and like really, really excited about it because I actually, I fell in love with, with that show and just like watched five seasons before the sixth one came out. And I know, I know there's another big fan of Lost on here. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I remember you're a fan of Juliet. Have we ever done the oh, the Sawyer, yeah. the the Sawyer and Juliet dine like thing on the show, or was that on a phone call? The like. That was I love, been a, yeah. I love you so much. Don't let go. Don't you dare <laughs> let go. <laughs> <laughs> That's. But anyway, I guess before we, this is what happens when good friends get together. We can just talk about anything. But this is going to be a longer episode because we have five books to go through. And one of them specifically is just out of this world. So the reviews this episode are going to be Batman Family number 11, 
Batman Family number 12 in the vintage area. And then in the modern, we have Batgirl, Birds of Prey, and Huntress, all number threes. So why don't we just start off right away, if there are no objections, with Batman Family number 11. And what, and what is the okay, cover on Batman go. number 11? I know, right? Maybe you should, uh, this, this will set everything up. The cover is uh, made of when and... Hold on, let me let me scroll to the cover so I can accurately describe this thing. I'll tell the story about when I first got this issue later on. Okay, first we we get the Batman family logo and it says Giants and it says all new stories headline into dynamic duo. But what we have is Barbara Gordon wearing all white and her mask is a bat veil. Yes, a bat veil, and she's holding a bouquet of flowers with Dick Grayson in, or excuse me, Richard Grayson in um. A Robin tuxedo with with, with green with, with, with green gloves and, and a white Jimmy Olsen esque bow tie. They're being surrounded by they're being surrounded by like these sinister looking thugs, particularly the one that's on the far right, on the other side of Barbara. He yeah. he's got he's got a really interesting look in his face. They're all pulling guns on them. I know. And they're standing in front of um, a minister who you can't see, but you can see the open book, which is also clutching a gun, and he yeah. says. Robin and Batgirl, I pronounce you man and wife, till death do you part, with wedding with weddings behind them all holding guns. And, as we're promised um, on the cover, the, the, the debut of a new team, Commissioner Gordon and Alfred, <laughs> which is a fun story, too. And beginning a new series starring Man Bats. So, we open up the book, and the first uh, thing that we get is Wonder Woman fighting obesity. Um, she's apparently <laughs> rounding up fat team. chicks. Oh and- my gosh. Okay. With the Twinkies, yeah. Look, look at them. Look at the bottom, the bottom panel. She's like, she's tying up fat chicks. Oh a Maltese cupcake. <laughs> yeah. Great hero. What a crummy idol. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> so then, then we open to the splash page where it, it's, we we get we get the crew, we get Batgirl and and Robin in these this weird wedding getup again, which they don't actually wear this in the story, which is very very disappointing, but. These costumes, they need to be in the episode art or something or on the website. I posted scenes from this on Scans Daily years ago, and a commenter said that no matter who he marries, she must wear the bat veil because it's just too awesome for words. Oh, boy. And he was right. Okay. So the splash page says that we are cordially invited to attend the wedding of Batgirl and Robin. Dan DiDio probably would not like this at all. Sure, you've heard about shotgun weddings, but we'll wager you never expected our dynamic duo to be the targets in one. How this matrimonial mayhem came about will be revealed as the bride and groom make a vow to fight till death do us part. And that may not be very long at all. So the recorder of this wedding is Bob Rosakis. Kurt Swan and Vince Coletta are the Artistic License Bureau, and Jerry Serp supplies the flowers. We begin at Hudson University, where Robin is doing a toss-up for a basketball tournament. And we get some crummy William Dozier-esque narration. Let's see. Just about everyone's seen a basketball game, but we'll venture to say you've never seen one quite this way. Through the sight of a rifle? (laughs) (laughs) Which is very presumptuous. How do you know that readers don't watch basketball games through sights of rifles? It's like, you know, when you don't have binoculars, you got to... Your opera glasses, you got to do it some way. So the guy is aiming at Robin as he's about to do the toss-off. The shot is fired, but luckily Airbud, the basketball-playing dog for the team, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> 
catches the bullet midair with his teeth, saving the day and teaching Josh Fram a valuable lesson about letting his mother remarry. <laughs> Just like the porpoise from the 1966 Batman movie. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, Airbud doesn't actually show up, so Robin falls to the ground. The sniper takes apart <laughs> <laughs> The sniper takes apart his rifle, hides it in his trench coat, and tries to get away with the panic crowd. Robin catches him though, revealing that the basketball took the bullet for him, much like the brave porpoise from the 1966 Batman movie. Which I, I wouldn't the bullet go through the basketball and still kill him? Like uh, it's exactly. like basketballs. Basketballs are hollow. Um, it's I don't know. And Robin brought the basketball with him. Like see, see here it is, all dead and everything. Like he ha- he had to show the guy like exactly what happened. Like I don't know why he needed to do that. But the sniper says that he'll just shoot Robin again. Which his gun was already taken apart. Like does he think that he's just going to stand there and wait while he puts it back together? And obviously, he doesn't stand there and wait. Instead, he beats the guy up, makes a bunch of puns, and then throws him into the basket and comments about how he made two points. The puns continue, much to the annoyance of the arriving police officers who drag the sniper away. Robin somehow concludes that the guy works for Maze, the organization that he and Batgirl once battled. A A mysterious, balding man pulls into a gas station somewhere on the other side of town, or in the middle of nowhere, and yells at the mirror in his restroom about its failure to murder Robin. Turns out, though, that the man's not certifiably insane because the mirror is a communication device. Don't worry, that's never explained. <laughs> but the mirror is a communication device to whoever within maids was supposed to take care of Robin's demise. Meanwhile, in a deserted parking garage in Washington, D.C., which is complete with a Watergate reference because it's the 70s, Batgirl's there because someone sent her an anonymous tip to check out the suspicious going-ons. And we know that those are never traps. No siree. The car she winds up chasing on her Batgirl cycle turns around in an attempt to run her over, and Babs realizes that it was a trap. Sacla blue. What a twist. Her cycle is total, but she winds up on the roof of the car, punching out the guys and sending their car crashing into the wall. None of them have life-threatening injuries somehow, though. She sees that the men are maze agents as well. Once again, in a bathroom far away, the man, the balding man yells at Amir and says that he'll be calling the shots at the next hit, meaning that he's putting like the circumstances of this next hit together, which we'll talk about how that's a little... We'll talk about in the recap how there's that, that actually makes what's about to happen a little more sense. But, yeah, I'm looking at this panel of the car crashing again. I don't know how these guys are not dead. A bunch of crooks are gathered at Ford Theater and give us some exposition, like <laughs> very big exposition. <laughs> I'd sure like one of them's I'd sure like to know how this thing was set up. According to the grapevine, Numero Uno of Mace himself arranged it. Yeah, he's supposed to be here in the theater to make sure it comes off right. <laughs> and one of them like has opened an invitation to the wedding you are cordially invited to the wedding of Batgirl and Robin at 4pm in Ford Theater Washington DC a double execution will follow <laughs> so, <laughs> so somebody actually printed up somebody actually printed up invitations for this and like I said like the priest is you know at the podium on, on the stage and is telling everyone the quiet because the ceremony is going to begin Everyone has their rifles out, and like he's like, no, you got to hide their rifles before they come. <laughs> <sighs> and now, friends, if you will, if you will holster your firearms, we will begin. Uh, so Robin arrives on stage, and 
much to my disappointment, he's not wearing the tuxedo. And we get more exposition from the from the crooks in the audience. Looks like he's in some kind of a trance, and he doesn't even know we're here. Yeah? Remember saying that out loud? And the other guy said, yeah, leave it to the boss to make Robin a sitting duck. Which raises the question, if the boss was able to get Robin to do this, why the whole show? Why not just shoot him in the head? And as the strains of Here Comes the Bride fill the theater, Babs walks down the aisle with a bouquet, but no bat veil, unfortunately. Although it looks like she's wearing a bow tie in that in that panel. That's she's been wearing that, like, that cape thing for a while now. That it's just like the way it is. I feel like it started okay. once she got her congresswoman position, like she always has this collar now. It's very odd. Oh, the dialogue in that panel's great, yeah. Ah, what I'd give to plug that witch right now. And then more exposition. Sit tight, baby. We gotta wait till the minister marries him. I don't know why. <laughs> till death do him part. So, they're at the podium, and the minister starts. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here to join these two in fatal matrimony. Yes, fatal matrimony. Oh, why is this Bob happening? Paprazakis. Paprazakis, why? <laughs> Will thou, Batgirl, have this man Robin to be thy wedded husband, to have in the hold from this day forward, so long as you both shall win? You betcha. I will. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, this this actually, I I need to stress this to the listeners, this is actually happening. This does actually exist. This isn't an April Fool's episode. This isn't a gag. This is, this is... This is real. Will thou, Robin, have this woman background to be thy wedded wife? For better or for worse, for richer or for poor, as long as you both shall live. I will. So then the crooks all take out their guns. Get ready. Here it comes. But all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the minister, the minister explodes, and Raven and, and, and Deathwing come in and assault Starfire. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, when you say assault, you mean okay? No, oh wait, no, never mind. That, 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 Why are you bringing a Teen Titans reference? <laughs> the worst yeah. Time oh wait, that, that's <laughs> wait. Yeah, that, that, that's that's the wrong wedding. That, that, that that's that's Dick Grayson's next wedding. <laughs> Just wait till you see that one, folks. Uh, no, the minister actually doesn't explode, but he gets a chance to pronounce them husband and wife till death do you part. And everyone opens fire, and the <laughs> minister hides behind the podium. Which isn't the first time that um that 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 someone will be hiding behind a podium from gunfire tonight. Wow, we blasted them right out of existence because for some reason Robin and Batgirl are not on the stage. There's just a bunch of bullet holes on the podium and no corpses. So yes, the logical conclusion is we blasted them right out of existence. We really blew them away. No, no, no. That's not no. You you can't shoot something out of existence. That's not how. If a human body is standing in front of a stage and it gets shot, even if it's shot 90 times, it doesn't blow out of existence. Its atoms don't cease to exist. <laughs> there will still be a corpse. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> the, the, the fact that, like, this was the first thought of these crooks just shows how stupid this was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Robin, Robin and Becker respond, the only thing you blew was your chance to stay out of jail. <laughs> As they swing above the theater, Batgirl and Robin alive? Robin reveals via memory flashback exposition that he and Batman oh, were tr- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, the panel's awesome. I know, it's very strange. They're three-head, like, going, yeah, never mind. 
<laughs> yeah. They went through a trap door at the last minute to avoid the bullets from blasting them out of existence. Okay, of course. <laughs> of course. And so they fight these crooks while they're making a bunch of wedding puns about, like, oh, the bride, the kiss of gift, where are the gifts? And then, this is just stupid. I don't know why Robin has this in his utility belt, but he goes up to, like, three guys all drawing guns on him. I know you're supposed to throw rice at the groom, but this groom prefers to pepper the guests. And he throws pepper at the he borrowed that from Batwoman. He makes one guy sneeze. <laughs> oh... And then I'll never forget this panel. Bass says, heads up, puppy. Here comes your blushing bride and jumps into Robin's arms as he carries her across the threshold while she's screaming. Guys, like, yeah. Uh, And and he looks like he's 12 years old in that bottom panel. Allow me to carry you across. What did you just ask? A little bit. His mask is red. He looks like he's blushing a little bit. Allow me to carry you across the threshold. So that's over. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the police come, they carry away the priest, and, and Batgirl's like, aha, he was he was the head man. And then he's like, nah, I'm a real priest. And then they silently discuss themselves that because that because there's no evidence, he'll probably get set three. And then Babs jokes and says, come on, husband, come back to my place and I'll whip you up something to eat. Sounds good. I've worked up quite a big appetite. But we still have some unanswered questions. So Barbara breaks down the fourth wall and addresses the readers. Like, she's at her apartment or her house or wherever, having coffee a mess, and looks directly at the reader and says, Oh, hi there, readers. I didn't see you there. Surprise. (laughs) (laughs) I want to remind everyone. It's like Mr. Rogers. Oh, hey there. (laughs) Well, it's like, oh, hi, Ruth. I didn't see you here in my kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) thanks for stopping by would you like some of this back coffee (laughs) oh hi there readers a real line I guess you've got a couple of questions A like how Robin and I got trapped into that marriage ceremony in the first place and the identity of the mystery man who's been bankrolling our killing from the start (laughs) don't worry none of these questions will be answered satisfactorily (laughs) she doesn't say that but it's true, yeah. But it's pretty much true. Well, first, let me point out a few clues so you can figure it out for yourself. First off, Robin and I knew Maze was back in operation, but couldn't break it up without finding the headman. And then someone from off-panel, yeah, says, which called for some master planning to smoke him out. Correct. Now remember, Robin and I weren't really drugged at that wedding. Uh, why was there a wedding in the first place? Knowing the arrangements, we set up the trapdoor escape in advance and were able to drop it at just the right time. Why didn't they just, like, have the cops storm the place? Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And then Robin talks talks to the cabinet. We we can't see his face yet. You know, Wilson from Home Improvement Style. Which, of course, it was Maze that was set up, not us. And then Batgirl says, and who was the wonder who pulled out this sensational scheme? And then we see Robin's face, and he was the balding old man that was yelling at mirrors all along. This, this little old crime. Oh, uh, this confused me, too. Yeah, about- I was just like, wait, who is that guy? Because why is Robin in the kitchen? Why does he decide to put on the mask? When this was a kid, I'll, I'll tell him, like, this really confused me, and I actually thought that that was Commissioner Gordon. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, who is this? Okay. So, this little old crime buyer, me. And then Bab says, with a hem, a financial assist from you-know-who. 
<laughs> and then they start like talking about how smart the readers are. Right, but our readers probably had that all figured out. Of course, they're real sharp, they're but we're insulting them with a story this juvenile. <laughs> you know, Rob. And then it gets really creepy. Oh, you know, boy, Robin, yeah. you're quite... You're quite attractive as an older man. Really. Maybe I'll keep this disguise on for a while. Wah, the wah, wah. Yeah, the scene ends exactly there. What happens after that? Who knows? Who knows? Now, let's, let's go back to panel one for a second, though. Panel one? <laughs> you got a couple of questions. Like how Robin and I got trapped into that marriage ceremony in the first place. Yeah, that's never answered. Nope. That's never answered at all. Okay, so, and unanswered questions. If Robin was trying to smoke Maze out... How was he able to communicate with that maze guy through this mirror in, like, a random restroom? Does he just have, like, random mirrors set up around the USA as, like, communication stations for criminals? And if if he knew who the head of maze was to contact him, why didn't he just go to him? And why did he have to do things that way? Why did he pick a marriage ceremony? Why were the criminals this stupid? Now, knowing that Robin is the mysterious balding guy that set up this, like, fake marriage ceremony... Maybe he said, huh. and for this plan to work, Babs and I have to pretend to get married. Like, you know, with his crush on her, I could see that playing into it, but it's still really, really, really weird. There are no words for this story. <laughs> this is just like a bubbling pile of question marks. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do really like the connection back to the maze agents because we saw them way back in Batman Family Number 5, and I feel like this could have been a really solid story kind of taking down um, the big guy from that. But just all of these things, like these elements, it's like all shoved together, and they just don't really fit. Uh, I don't really like all the action, you know, happening between chapters 2 and 3 in, in off-panel land, as Josh likes to call it. Like, nothing... <laughs> nothing's really explained and then it just leaves us having to just accept what Batgirl is telling us and just like what Josh said I mean half of the, the questions are still not answered why was there a wedding in the first place what was the exact point of that except for some major shipping but it, it is such a strange story that's all it needs <laughs> well we have some shipping they could have had them walked in their drugs and sh- they could have had them walked in there drugged and just shot them. They're like, no, no, no. They have to pretend they get married first for some reason. Yeah. Like, why not just have them walk in there and shoot them right then and there? Not only that, but have, when have I was, them um, use their guns. You know, have, have them use all their guns and ammunitions, run out of ammo, and then have the cops immediately bust in on them. Instead of just, like, fighting them one by one by one by one by one. I mean, they, they run away. They could have busted every last one of them. And how did they, yeah, prevent each other from getting whatever dazed or drugged or i mean that's another big question because they're not in a trance they're just pretending but how did that go about so and that's not explained i know for all these for all the exposition that was given here like they they don't explain like why they're supposed to be at this wedding and like why they're supposed to be drugged like they, they over-exposit, like, some things, and then they under-exposit others. It's, like, it's really weird. So the idea when of I was saying, ooh, back been... with Robin, they're getting married, I gotta see this. Let me grab my gun and go, go to the wedding. <laughs> it's like a Silver Age Superman story where everyone's obsessed with marriage for some reason, and Gosh. there's weddings all the time. It's When, when I was um, 11 or 12 years old, I got this at a comic shop in New York. When I was visiting my aunt, I was allowed to pick up one, and I saw this cover, and I was like, ooh, cool, like, <laughs> like that's a cover that'll get you curious. Like, yeah, for sure. I didn't know that, like, 
like, why did Robin and Batgirl get married? And then, like, and at the end, I thought that, like, that that was supposed to be Commissioner Gordon for some reason. And I was like, oh, so Commissioner Gordon disguised as Robin and pretended to marry his daughter. Okay. I, 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 I just went with it. <laughs> but I, 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 I still have my original copy of this comic somewhere. But, yeah, and, oh, this it, it's just, they're, they're so weird. And it's, <laughs> now the idea of Dick and Babs having a somewhere in their history, like, is this still canon? Probably not in the new fifty two, but because yeah. of their ages. But like, like just the. But remember, Dick Grayson's the guy that set up this whole wedding trap. So it was Dick Grayson who said it's gonna be a wedding. Like maybe yeah. maybe if Babs marries me, she'll have to love me. Huh. She'll have to. She'll just have. <laughs> yeah. Marvel and I wonder if it counts as an actual wedding. No, <laughs> I you know, thought about that. When I, was, I thought about that when I was younger. I was like, well, they're not using their real names. True, <laughs> and he, I don't know if that is, guy was ordained either. Of course it was. <laughs> oh man, what would have made the the epilogue even like cl- classier would be if like um, Robin was walking around his in his underwear or something in Babs's kitchen. <laughs> that would be classic. He's like, all right, Babs. Let's, all right, Babs. Let's consummate this thing. Oh my gosh. Richard, do you know Babs was just Babs winks at the panel and then at the end. Richard, we can't consummate this. This was a fake wedding, but we have to pretend to be drugged and consummate it because they won't shoot us until like. <laughs> and then we'll put a trap door in the bed and. Oh, oh man. Um, I don't know if you caught this, but Batgirl's eyes went back to being blue when I was very excited that they were finally green in the previous Batman family, and then this one, their color blue. That's right. There, there are some close-up shots strange. of their pretty blue eyes, and like. Yeah. The wrong color. I did enjoy that pepper. I thought that was like, what? Most <laughs> random thing to come from Robin's utility belt. Instead of a batarang, he's just, yeah. here's some pepper. I'm still looking at this epilogue. Oh, hi there, readers. <laughs> <laughs> but our readers probably had that all figured out. Of course. Of course. They're real sharp. Yes. They're so smart. Let's insult their intelligence with the... Oh, that reminds me of that Spider-Man issue where, where Jameson was being condescending towards Harry. He'll go far. It sounds like Babs is being like condescending. Oh, yeah, they're real smart, the, them readers. <laughs> oh, man. They'll swallow anything. Uh, so what, what kind of uh, score would you give? Remember, I'm out of 10. <laughs> what score would you give? I'll, I'll give this 10 out of 10 because it is so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. It's, it's, I don't think I've ever given any of the old issues ever a 10 out of 10. And here's the first, and it's happening with this one. Oh, because because it's so ridiculous. It's funny. It's like, from like Barbara directly addressing to the readers, to this magic mirror that's never explained, to the wedding that comes out of nowhere, and to like, oh, God, oh, God bless, God bless. <laughs> <laughs> to the basketball, oh, like the, the basketball that took the bullet, you know, yeah, and that was I mean, and the appearance by Airbud and Raven, yeah, which never happened, but you know, they were they were both nice. Oh man, yeah, this is this is Dick Grayson's first wedding, folks. Unless there's like some Silver Age uh, BS one, but his next one's going to be a little more chaotic. Oh. There's going to be a retcon where like Batman says, "Okay, Dick Grayson, before you can be my partner, you must get married to this criminal or something like that." Thank like, Grayson first. How about you, Don? What grade would you give it? Um, grade would I give this story? I would give this uh, six out of ten bats. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> because it's not a. I, I'm not gonna say it's a, it's a wholly bad story, even though it clearly is. Just because 
It's one of those so bad it's good stories like that that one Spider-Man Unlimited issue where Kane's in a Spider-Man costume for no reason. <laughs> but like it's it's not all there's you can have fun with it, but it doesn't make any sense at all. So it's uh, it's it's fun to not take seriously, but at the same time you can't take it seriously. Yeah, I would uh, I guess split the two and and give it seven out of ten bats. I think it certainly had some potential. It was ridiculous, but it was funny in its ridiculousness. It was great to see Maze again, and I think it could have been like an awesome story with you know taking down Maze. I wonder what my expressions were like because I was reading this when my AP Virgil uh, students were taking their test, and I just wonder like if I was making any faces. But seven out of ten bats for me, certainly. Well, how does how does the shipper in you feel that Dick and Badge, you know, got married in this it story? Was, it was it was good, and I enjoyed. You know, one of my favorite <laughs> moments was when uh, he was carrying her over the proverbial threshold, and, and you know, she's clearing the way with her fists and kicks. I did like that, uh, but there was no kiss. You know, that would have been great to follow up the kiss that c- caused so many letters and controversies and people from Natalie, Virginia, writing in and being really upset. So, but yeah, no kiss. So I can only hope that uh, something will happen soon. Maybe the kid said when he had that mask on at the end. That's true. Which is <laughs> kind of disturbing once you think of it. I don't know. Kind of disturbing. Well, yeah, you're attractive <laughs> as an old man. Like, what the heck? And, and, and remember, we all, two out of the three of us thought that he was Commissioner Gordon. Yes. Which means that he looks like Commissioner Gordon. So if she's going to kiss him when he looks like her dad. It's <laughs> What is that? The elect- Isn't that Electra? Yeah. The Electra syndrome? Electro complex. Well, complex. Look at look at the look at the bottom panel. Like, <laughs> the, like get her face. Her face is so creepy when she's like looking up. That smile. Oh, like it, it, it's like it's Heather Glenn esque. Oh, oh, Heather Glenn. Get over your own shipping bullshit. Oh man. Well, I guess to wrap this up, you know, is everyone's favorite moment. Uh, Batmail. Batmail from. Why is it called Batmail Family? Whatever. But uh. Batmail. And now that I have multiple people on here, that is great. So I'm going to play any female, which is actually just one and not in this issue. I will read and Donovan will – or you guys can take turns. But I definitely – I think Josh would do a great Bob Rizakis. So do you guys have the uh, the Batmail? Oh, I do. Oh, yes. Do, do you have – Okay. And I'll because I'll never forget one of these letters because I because I read this at the airport when I was like final from New York and I thought that it was BS even then. There are Batman Families number nine, startling secret of the devilish daughters was super. It was a great idea to expand the Joker's daughter routine into a feminine rose gallery. This no, it wasn't. Gave, <laughs> this certainly gave the reader plenty of action. There are only two points that bothered me. First. I don't think that Dwella Dent should have gotten off so easily. Anyone who endangers public safety by creating a panic in the crowded theater commits petty larceny, Robin's mask, destroys private property, commits assault and battery, and resists arrest three times is guilty of much more than malicious mischief. In most states, these not-real crimes, quote-unquote, would put her in jail for a year! It disturbs me that someone could so easily discover Robin's true identity. In the past, other villains have uncovered the secrets of Superman and Batman, but Clark and Bruce have always managed to get out of it by their quick wits. It was disappointing that Dick could not do the same. Michael Sandefur, Ennsville, Indiana. You have 
to remember, Mike, that majority of the crimes Duella committed were against Robin and Batgirl. Since neither member of the dynamic duo chose to press charges, she cannot be prosecuted. Similarly, Robin put in a good word for Duella when she paid double for the property she damaged. Ernie's Oriental Palace now boasts a sign which reads, Robin thought here, it's great for business. As for Robin covering his identity, he could do it at any time by having someone stand in for Robin, like Jimmy Olsen, who has experience in that role. While he appears as Dick, but he trusts Duella and has no need to do so. Whoa! I don't even know what to say about that explanation. <laughs> How, what? When did this happen? That she paid double for property damage and there's now a sign on the Oriental Palace. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's, oh it's canon. Gosh. It's yeah, off panel land. There are, there aren't many times that I agree with people that write in, but that was one of the things that I brought up is that the fact that like Robin just shakes it off when they're talking on campus and like he doesn't do anything and she asks, you know, can you put in a bid for me and then T Titans and he's basically like, "Okay." And I just thought, "Oh, that does not make sense." Oh yeah, and back then anyone could join the Teen Titans. Oh boy. <laughs> anyone and everyone. Oh, yeah. I mean, Betty Kane was in the Teen Titans back then, and, like, there, there's a scene with, like, her and Duella, like, arguing about Robin. No. I think I think Duella, like, even, like, puts in a good word for Babs, because she's like, ooh, I heard that he and the new Batgirl are, you know, hot item now, and Betty's like, not, the- a, not if I can help it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Which was also written by Bob Rosaskis. <laughs> Yeah, when I was a kid and I read these letters, I was like, like when Bobber Zox is like, he trusts Duella. Like, yeah, this new character that you created, who's only been around for like two issues, he trusts her so much. Okay. <laughs> With his very life. Bobber you old sly fox, you of all the possible suspects I consider to be the Joker's daughter. I never would have thought her to be Two Face's daughter. The fact That's that because she was a new character that was never created. <laughs> Said Bob Rosakis. <laughs> Inserted. <laughs> no, says Joshua Lapham Bertone in 2012. <laughs> I never suspected it would be this character. Real? Like, did anyone say, I knew it was Duella, even though she didn't exist? Okay, keep going. <laughs> the fact that none of us knew Two-Face even had a daughter, notwithstanding, the revelation of her identity was a real shocker. While startling oh, secret of the devilish daughters was billed as a Batgirl-Robin team-up, it was actually Robin all the way. For the first time, Batgirl played a secondary role, one which could have easily eliminated entirely. I'm glad it wasn't. Her presence is always welcome. It's simply interesting that Rosakis maneuvered the characters in such a fashion, much more realistic, actually. It would have been too incredible to believe that every team-up could result in equal action for all. Irv Novik and Vince Coletta turned in a commendable art job, Coletta's inks complement Novick's pencils like no inker but Dick Giordano has been able to do. The Batman family of all of characters are no easy group to draw, but Herb seems to especially suited to capturing the right techniques in hand-to-hand combat required. Finally, I feel compelled to observe that there must be a substantial age difference between Dick Grayson and Dwella Dent. Even though they are both in college, Dick was already crime-fighting when Harvey Dent became Two-Faced, and surely Dent didn't have an obsession with the number two until that time. Yet Duella states that her father hated her because he wanted twins. Thus, she must have been born after Harvey was scarred, which when Robin was at least 12 years old. Yes. And if Dick is 21, which is stretching things a bit, Duella can't be much older, more older than 9, 10? Scott Gibson, Evergreen, Colorado. Would you believe Duella's tall for her age? <laughs> Seriously. 
Seriously, though, this is just an example of selective aging in comic books. Yes, there should be a ten-year difference in the ages of Dick and Duella. But for the sakes of an interesting storyline, there isn't. One of the advantages of writing comics is that you can age people selectively. And it's a good thing we can do it, or Batman would be 65 and Robin 48 today. Whoa! While Dick was aging from 12 to 19, not 21, else how could we call him the Teen Wonder? Duella grew from infancy to 18. Okay. All right. Okay. Let everyone react to that. You know I what mean, I like about that? Yeah. That most Josh. It happens in soap operas. They, like, have little kids, and then the kids go off, and then they come back, and they're older. So I guess if we accept it there, we can accept it here. <laughs> Take it with a grain of salt. The explanation is completely redonkulous. Cum salis grano. Yeah. I don't know. It, yeah. Complete. Marv Wolfman hated this. Like, um... When he, Why like, wouldn't he? <laughs> like, Marv Wolfman has said, like, many... I think that there's even an interview where Marv Wolfman says, Barbara Zoktis said selective aging. I thought that that was complete garbage. So, in um, the new Teen Titan... No, it was Tales of the Teen Titans, issue 50. At Donna Troy's wedding, Duella shows up, and, like, Dick says, Wait a second, a thought just occurred to me. Either Spider-Man's... Dis- I mean, um, you're too old to be Two-Face's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> And then she says, took you long enough, but whose daughter are you really? And then she's like, Duella away. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You know what I like best about this? They say that Robin started out when he was 12 years old and not 8 years old. And it's pre-crisis, too, so. Hey. I wonder if anyone goes, has ever gone insane trying to figure out comic timelines. Oh, Josh and I have. Yes. But do you think, like, literally insane, like, they had to lock themselves away? Like, they just thought about, and they just, like, went batty. Josh and I have. We're, we're, <laughs> okay. we're, we're evil right now. Okay. The, the, the fact that Duella isn't Two-Face's daughter makes things, like, really weird, because there's a Titans issue by Bob Razakis where, like, the Titans fight Two-Face. For some reason, like, all of them against him is, like, enough for a fight, and uh, there's a I am your daughter moment, and he's like, What? And, like, recognizes her as Duella, which, um, I don't know how that works if he never had a daughter named Duella, so yeah. But there was little teamwork in Batman Family Issue 9. It was so delightful. I enjoyed the script and missing, and the art was good, too. I'm pleased to see Bob is using some imaginative reasons for uniting the dynamic duo, as it adds a touch of reality to the strip. The opening of the tale was great, and Lori Elton's interjection was well-placed. I like the fact that Babs continues to have a warm friendship with Dick, but doesn't push it any farther. She knows where to draw the line in their relationship. Even though this was a team story, there was a lot more soul action. I was happy to hear to see Batgirl bellying by her lonesome I was surprised by Dick's absence from the assembly. It did make an interesting situation, however. Scarecrow's own surprise at finding Batgirl was a nice touch, and the assuming fracas was very nice. Robin's solo bit was extremely good, and I was pleased by the unexpected turn of events leading to his unmasking and his own reaction to it. The final battle was also a bit split up, but I really didn't mind. This pair will always have one antagonist to deal with, so their teamwork can always be displayed. I thought it most interesting that Batgirl found rescuing Barbara Gordon's plaque more important than unmasking the Paintwood's daughter. I wonder why. The unmasking itself was interesting. But I must ask, what clues led to Robin to his conclusion? Scott R. Tyler, Portland, Texas. My throat hurts like hell. Elementary, my dear Scottson. Dick checked his last names of Batman's foes, Nigma. 
for Riddler, Kyle for Catwoman, etc. Till he came up with Duella Dan among the student listings at Hudson. A quick check of her background confirmed his suspicions, and he knew who he was dealing with. Clever. Woot. <laughs> they said woot back then. Oh my gosh. I don't know how much I believe that. But it was also confusing in that issue how she realized, like she had her own mental list of possible candidates for Robin and then was sweeping the auditorium and she's like, well, that narrows it down. So it must either be Richard Grayson or other people that I'm not going to mention. It was a very, it was a very strange issue to say the least. They're all strange issues. (laughs) That's true, I guess. What will happen next? Well, no, no, that just, I wanted to give an honorable mention to um, another story in this issue. Um, Commissioner Gordon and Batman's Butler Alfred in surprise, surprise. Okay. Which is, a ridiculous, a ridiculous zany story, <laughs> which, uh, oh yes, really, where Alfred, Alfred pretends to be a criminal to rob Wayne Manor, because he thinks that that'll throw Commissioner Gordon off of Batman's secret identity, but it only makes things more suspicious, and there's a surprise party for Bruce Wayne. And at the end, Commissioner Gordon, like, winks at the reader, like, oh, I'm sure Batman is here. Why, you might even say that Batman is Bruce Wayne. Why, you might even say that I figured out their identity. Why, you might even say that, like, just, like, brings it home that he, like, that he knows who they are. And a uh, continuity note here is that Vicky Vale returns for the first time since the Silver Age with a husband named Tom Powers. And um, the next writer that wrote her forgot that she was married and... Yeah, the next time she appears, she's single again with no explanation. So they had to, like, retroactively divorce her in a future story. Well, if you ever, ladies and gentlemen, want to get divorced, just be a character in a comic book, because it'll happen accidentally. Or Fran Drescher. Oh, my gosh! Ah, you told him not to make a reference, I know. and you did it. <laughs> I betrayed my own, my own rule. Oh. Okay, well, next issue, Batman Family number 12. Oh, yes. In this Batman family number 12, the splash page of Batgirl's story sees Batgirl hanging with one hand on the spirit of St. Louis and a, uh, a smug-looking guy with glasses and a beard talking to us, breaking the fourth wall, as this, this title tends to do. He says, though, you're not, you're, though you may not recognize me, reader, I'm sure you know that the costume cutie in the scene is Batgirl. And the air, airplane flying above Washington, D.C. is Charles Lindbergh's famous Spirit of St. Louis. This pilot, however, is definitely not Lucky Lindy. He's a weirdo called Captain Arrow, and he's doing his darnest to dump his passenger. And just who am I, That's, and what's my personal interest in all this? You'll understand when I tell you my name is Tony Gordon, and I am Batgirl's brother. <laughs> The splash, page, the splash page scene immediately shifts to Tony pinning a letter to his ginger-headed sister, recalling the day he was thought to have been lost forever on a hot air balloon expedition. Unbeknownst to Barbara and the commissioner, Tony was indeed alive, if you can call his fate life. For he was caught by soldiers of China, but not just China, Red China, thinking him to be an American spy. The soldiers questioned Tony for information before Which he was. He was a spy. I'm not a spy, really. I'm not. I'm just. I'm just here to spy on you, you and your government. You gotta believe me. The soldiers questioned Tony for information before he escaped the prison, as as he was about to receive a very die another day esque fate. Tony escapes into agents of both Hong Kong and America, who give him a new identity and a questionable beard. He became a tourist guide to the Smithsonian, 
and one day is beholden to the sight of his visiting little sister, Babs Boots Batgirl Gordon. Randomly, the Wright brothers' plane crashes through the Smithsonian with a certain Captain Arrow at the helm. Babs changes it to Batgirl, with Tony recognizing her as easily as if they were in the 1960s Batman show. Arrow escapes, but Batgirl is hot on the trail, with Tony following. Batgirl tracks Arrow to his secret hideout, but once she reveals herself, he touches her with his welding, welding torch. Babs shields with her flame-proof cape and goes after the fleeing Arrow. She manages to knock him out before he can escape, but not without injury to her head as the plane crashes. And in a panic, Tony runs to check on her, where Batgirl says the same in recognition. Tony later flees, and we then see that the entire flashback was indeed the letter he was writing Barbara before he burns it up. The end. This was a very random and um, almost obtrusive, obtrusive story, but hey, it's a Batman family issue, so... I don't think that Tony Gordon should be like that. That was a big waste of paper just to burn it. I mean, doesn't he realize what's going on with the environments? It does sort of remind me of when Cat Cassandra Kane was um, <clears throat> when she was about to leave, and she was making that recorded message to Babs, and she like has this whole thing and, and thanks her and says like you are like a mother to me, and then she erases it and basically just says like goodbye. But it kind of reminds me of that. And then she runs right into Barbara. <laughs> yeah, um, it doesn't remind me of that. Only, only that I'm not sure because he, he seemed he's, it seemed though that he was playing on burning it from the very start. I'm oh, not yeah. sure why he would. It was go, go it was cathartic. I, if you can call it cathartic, I suppose so. Uh, yeah, Batgirl's brother here is not a psychotic, psychotic killer. He's just a psychotic <laughs> Smithsonian tourisman. Yeah. I do wonder how What's how the- he could ever expect not to run into Babs when they're in the exact same city. Like, he's very, you know, oh, I, I never thought I'd run into you, though I knew you were here. What? How does, I don't know. I mean, I guess Washington's kind of bigger, but I feel like the odds are that you will at one point run into somebody else. He says, I don't know which surprised me more, the, the, the guy stealing that old Wright Brothers plane, or seeing here after all those years. It's, yeah. Nah. But I do give him points for actually being a, a, a sensible person because even after all those years, he is the one person in all of these comics that recognizes that Babs is Batgirl. Yes! <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not so much that he saw Batgirl and said it was Bat- Barbara, but he saw Barbara, and then he saw Batgirl and didn't see Barbara, and it's says like, two plus two is four, so... Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, another person from Gotham City that lives in Washington, D.C. now, with red hair. It must be a coincidence. Uh, I, I noticed that he called her his kid sister, so then I realized that he was the older one, which in that world's finest flashback, he looked like he was, um, I was telling Stella, he looked between the ages of like 12 and 15 in his first appearance, which, w- which would have made like Babs like really young, but she's 25 in this as per, um, as per the a previous issue where she like stayed at her age, so. Right. He's got it like so. He's got to be like if it's his kid sister and he's he's a few years older than her. Let's say like he's got to be almost thirty. Yeah. Which meant that like which meant that like fifteen years or something has passed since that world's finest story, which I'm not buying because Dick Grayson was in it and he hasn't aged that much. So Bob Rosakis was onto something with that selective agent. I guess. <clears throat> yeah, and just so you know, listeners out there, the world's finest issue that Tony made his first appearance was fifty three. And I've I've looked a lot of places, and I know Josh has, and I can't find if there really is an issue where Tony goes up into a balloon and then dies tragically, and Babs is is crying. So I think that was certainly 
a write-in. <laughs> yeah, a write-in to like make it all kind of fit together. But apparently there is an issue where Tony and young Barbara fight Kal-El Superboy. Yep, because he was a summer counselor, good old Tony, at a camp. Oh, boy. Yeah. I didn't actually read that issue. Like, that's absolutely ridiculous to me. I found out about it a few hours ago when I was doing my Tony Gordon research, and I'm still shocked. Tony Gordon will show up again, and he'll uh, he'll be showing a lot more of himself. That he will, and I will be sure to cover it because it is indeed on my list of things to cover. Um, I, I did like that the entire issue was in the perspective of Tony rather than just like um, an unobtrusive narrator, or I guess it would be obtrusive. Uh, I thought it was just different because we haven't really seen this that far. But, you know, I, I the major question I would ask is why Bob Rosakis or the writers in general would suddenly want to bring Tony back after all these years and really what purpose does it serve? Because if he doesn't like continue on in another story, we don't see him until Detective Comics 482 couple years later so i just wonder you know why what was this story all about exactly especially if, if he's going to burn the freaking thing <laughs> like, yeah i suppose well, if you, if you wanted to show him the next the next his, his next appearance you wouldn't want to info dump info dump as much but like at the same time this was written before then so where okay so we're giving this information to this character who who i mean they could have just told the story straight. I mean, they were kind of be, trying to be all all uh, mystery and, and spy fiction about it with the letter. And, like, I must burn it so no one must ever know. But it doesn't make any literal sense. Actually, I, I, I like that they brought him in because, like, um, this character, even though he hasn't been making appearances, he does exist. And when the headlining character has a sibling that, like, this that this character has never mentioned before, eventually you, you would want to address that. Oh, yeah. No, I I, like, I agree with that. And it, and it, and it's a continuity thing. It's a continuity callback. Like they remember the fact that Commissioner Gordon had another son who's made appearances before. And was that Adventure Comics issue published before or after this? Adventure I have to look up what year that before, was. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Oh, I'm sorry. No, yeah. because that was it was after. It's it was. It is. It's in 1977 still, but it do, it it was published after. I can give wow. you. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So. So wow, like that's real. If I can't see if he's made any other appearances aside from World's Finest, but if he has or hasn't, that's like that's a nice obscure thing. And it's um again, it's remembering the fact that this character does have a sibling who's out there somewhere and using it. And it always it always seems to be a thing like when when the an older sibling dies, there's always this thing, this Babs in the flashback. Now this is this is his perspective, but Babs in the flashback is like you know. Don't forget about this, Tony. Like, no, I'm fine. He was all very heroic, and then like when he sought to be killed, she's like, oh. and it's, I find it, I find it kind of funny. I also kind of find it funny that like apparently he had red hair um, back then, and then like now he has black hair and a beard. But at the end, she's she she kind of recognizes him and says his name. I suppose it's a, it's a sibling bond, but I don't know. It was a, it was a little convenient, I suppose. Well, um, in um, the world's finest story, he had. I don't have it in front of me, but I believe he had brownish hair, from what I remember. Well, I mean, I, I, it, look, it looks it looks red in here, and I mean, I thought for years that that Commissioner Gordon had brown hair before his hair turned gray. I was gonna say one thing I really love in this issue is like the wonderful uh, exposition, and I don't mean the flashback, like when Barbara and her friends are going to the Smithsonian. Like you know, see, Deborah told you Babs would be glad her old college roommates came to town. Not you and me. Just her old college roommates, who just happened to be us. 
And then they talk about, like, you know, the spirit of St. Louis being stolen. They says, police are still baffled to this very day. <laughs> so they're telling an old ghost story that's current with that the issue. It's just good old Silver Age exposition. Uh, one thing that we learn about Babs in this, and I'm pretty sure we learned it before, uh, very early on, I'm sure, but we find out uh, that she has a brown belt in judo. I always try to keep track of these little tidbits and biographical things that we learn about Babs as we go along. I thought that that was mentioned in our first appearance, but yeah, it's been a long time. No, I believe probably was. I think it's just been like a long time since we've we've noticed these. Uh, so I just like to keep track of her resume and things that we know about her. In case I do decide to write a biography of her one day and publish it. I like the fact that um, her her uh, character description at the very beginning is like in an image of like a, a Congress building or whatever. <laughs> 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 Two identities, different as night and day, Congresswoman and the mysterious Domino Daredevil, which I'm really liking as as a as a, a, a moniker for Batgirl. Oh yeah, for sure. <clears throat> when I was doing um, what's it called, roller derby, I was thinking about once I passed my test to be Domino Daredevil as my as my name. Awesome. But you need to wear a mask. <laughs> yeah. Um... No, 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 no. She needs to wear the white wedding veil. Oh, maybe if I get married. <laughs> We're a cow all over your veil. That'd be so strange. So, do, do, what are your uh, your grades on this story? Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I'll give it, I'll give it a seven. It, it was it was a fine story. I, I question why he burned it, but yeah. I, I understand it within the, within the context of the issues. So it's seven out of ten bats. I give it a seven out of ten. It would have benefited from some more like mysterious people yelling at inanimate mirrors and rice and oh Barbara's attraction to older men and random weddings. It's that that would have made this. Maybe if she had said something like, "Oh, you're an attractive man," not knowing that was her brother, then it would have been good. Yeah. Or knowing her. Yeah, Oh, very Star Wars esque. Oh, the Luke and Leia. Uh, I give it seven point five. Um, I did. Yeah, I did enjoy the 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 story. I thought it was uh, a good story. I thought it was different, having a different mouthpiece, you know, telling it to us. And I certainly was thrown back when he burned it all. I was like, oh no! And I sort of clutched my heart because I thought it was pretty emotional. But it'll be, I don't know, I just wish we could kind of continue with this character and, and see where it would lead us. But it just seems like we, this is one moment in time, and then later we'll see it at another oh. moment. But nothing kind of in between and leading up to that, which is a little disappointing. But I do like the very last thing he says. Like The image of him burning the letter is him saying, you understand, don't you, sis, 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 the year. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Well, the other thing that happened in this Batman family issue, uh, Batgirl appears in Robin's story's epilogue. And Robin's story was called Rally Round Robin. (laughs) So, Josh, (laughs) do you want to go through, um, or unless, Don, if you recap this, but I know Josh, like, was, he kept, like, making fun of it. So would you you like to, like, what exactly happens? It's very short. But we get another story where, like, a superhero sees a notice of them in the paper and says that they're sure to appear. And the hero says, how do they know that I was going to appear? Which, that happened very notably in Amazing Spider-Man issue 17. But I've seen it, like, three or four places. And uh, so I guess Dick is planning on, like, is blowing off studying with Laurie Elton. 
but she like comes in like, don't you dare, and like you know like <laughs> a big a big screw the whole issue. Very Dory Evans from. Um, the, from the old Human Torch story, she's like, you're gonna go to the library and study with me! Oh. And then, like, somebody's calling Dick, and, like, she picks up the phone and pretends to be an answering machine, and the sad thing is, Barbara, it, it's Barbara, we later find out, and Barbara falls for it, like, oh, that obviously <laughs> is an answering machine, even though I've met Lori Elton, and, like, and it's the, and it's the most ridiculous answering machine message ever, like, she says, this is a recording, you, you, who, who starts off an an Actually, come to think of it, was there even answering machines back then? In 77? Oh, I guess there have to. I mean, yeah. if there weren't, then that, then that means they would be making up technology be for the future. Sure. Yeah, how that is. <laughs> and they're really smart. <laughs> a, a quick check to Wikipedia, let's see. <laughs> I remember in, I remember in like, there was, there was an early 80s episode of Cheers where, like, Sam gets an answering machine and everyone's like, wow, whoa, so advanced. And, like, it was it was a big event for the bar and it was actually a big plot point, too. Answering machine made Diane marry Frazier or Grayson, leave him at the altar. Yeah. This is a okay. recording. Mr. Grayson is not available Ants. at the moment because he is writing a very important term paper. Please call back later. Thank you. And you have Barbara at the other end, like a mouthing WTF. I don't believe you did that. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> what? Not According a, to this, uh, the, the first answering machine was invented in, in uh, 1898. Really? That can't be true. According to Wikipedia, yeah, almost accurate. That can't be true. So, okay, the first commercial answering machine was in 1949. Okay, that I can believe. Maybe. Okay, so so yeah, like she has, so she picks this up. So they're at the library, and like Dick is like really trying to get away from Lori, and she's not letting him. So he's like, "Ooh, gotta get another book, Lori. I'll be back as soon as I wait." Keep working. I'll get the book. No, no. I know exactly where to find it. I'll be back in a couple of minutes. As he, like, runs off before she can stop him. So he solves a crime, and, like, apparently there's a book being held hostage, and the guy's like, one wrong move, and I'll drop this book into the swimming pool. And Robin's like, oh, no, he'll actually drop it into the swimming pool, too. What'll I do? Well, don't worry, readers. He saves the book. And at the end, he gets back to the library, and Lori's like, Richard Grayson and a couple of... Richard Grayson, in my book, a couple of minutes means two, not 20. But then she invites him over to her house for some uh, hanky-panky, which brings us to the epilogue. Yeah, yeah, she talks about desserts. Yeah, if you know what I'm saying. Buy me dinner, and then we'll talk about what you have for desserts. Yeah, so he gets home, and then (laughs) apparently Barbara's been calling every hour by the hour. <laughs> What's the urgency? I just got a new bat cycle. And I love Dick's response. So you got a new bike. What's the big deal? <laughs> <laughs> you may call me every hour on the hour for that. Come on. No, you don't understand. I didn't order it. It came here by itself. Literally. <laughs> and it's been talking to me ever since, telling me to call you. Listen, Barbara Gordon. Barbara Gordon called Dick Grayson. Click. Called Dick Grayson. What do you make of it? Beats me. Sounds weird. And then there's a knocking on his door. Hang on, Babs. Someone's at the door. All right, read. All right, BTO listeners, hold on to your seats. It's a motorcycle. A Robin motorcycle. (laughs) Richard. And and it, it rides itself into the apartment. Your presence is required in New York, Richard Grayson. This is obviously a trap. I haven't read the next. I know. Yeah. 
I haven't read the next issue, but this has got to be a trap. But they're like, well, we better get onto these sentient motorcycles that know our names. And that's our cliffhanger. Yeah, and it even says, and after carefully checking over the cycle, and he even said, and no sign of tampering, so let me, but then these clamps lock their hands and legs. I don't know why they would even, why would you even trust it? Ay, ay, ay. Dick Grayson lives in a dorm. Like, did, That's true, yeah. Exactly. Did this like, thing, like, 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 go was, past, like, well, I mean, I mean, go up the stairs, like, how did you? The um the people would like we come out come out of their dorm rooms like saying like what robotic noise is like up in noise? Yeah, we're not called Batman and What's say going hey on? did you give us new bikes? I don't know. So and then I guess the end of it kind of leading to to next month from north and from north and south. It's another wedding. I know, right? And from north and south because there's a there's a book called kind of an epic called North and South. And from north and south, two motorcycles with their riders clamped to them roar through the night towards a meeting in New York City. A meeting which will startle you in Batman Family number 13. That was, that was great fun. And now to finish it up, there are several letters. <laughs> Gotta love the letters. There is one woman, so I get to have a turn. There's a, there's a Senator Cleary fan. Oh, I don't like Senator Quiro because we got rid of Jason Bard because of him. Just threw him out the window. I don't like it. Dear people, the Batgirl and Batwoman story, those were the battle days, and Batman Family number 10 was fantastic on just about all counts. Batgirl and Batwoman make a terrific team, and it was a nice touch of realism to have them stumble upon each other's identities the second time Killmoth and the Cavalier showed up. There were a few mechanical difficulties with the story, however, like how Barbara Gordon hid a long-sleeve backo costume under a short-sleeve blouse, and how <laughs> Kathy Kane's hair managed to grow six inches every time she switched to Batwoman. But both heroines were sensational and really looked it, thanks to the art team. I must admit I was not too thrilled when I heard Batwoman was coming back. Her reprinted adventures left me unimpressed. But in this tale, she came close to outshining Batgirl, and the fact that I didn't mind this means something, since Batgirl is my all-time favorite comics character. The revived and revised Batwoman is a resounding success. It's ridiculous for you to even talk about retiring a dynamite character like her, especially with a flimsy excuse like that spring chicken line. It sounds like that old sexist idea that life for a woman ends at 30, while the prime of life for men goes on and on. <laughs> on another note, the Bacco Robin romance seems to be progressing quite nicely. Even in Robin's absence, I notice that Babs is getting a bit more enthusiastic about Dick, the way she flung her arms around him in Batman Family Number 9. But that's just the problem. A romance between Batgirl and Robin does make sense since when they're in costume, they are basically out of context with everyday matters like a seven-year age difference. But as the situation when Babs visited Hudson University showed, a romance between Congresswoman Gordon and college freshman Grayson just wouldn't last very long, if at all. For one thing, what would all their respective friends think? Friends? Lori Elton's <laughs> acting like a desperately jealous fifth wheel already. And whatever happened to that nice Senator Cleary? Ugh. <clears throat> Kathleen O'Houlihan, New York, New York. 
Further developments in the Batgirl-Robin relationship will be coming up in our next issue. Whoa! As for our mechanical problems, Babs merely rolled up her bat sleeves and Kathy's costume contains a long-haired bat wig. Okay? Please? Yeah, I thought it was a lie. Well, I kind of... Well, I'll go with the bat wig if only because our current uh, Kate Kane has a wig. That's the only reason why I'm doing it. But back then, I probably would not have accepted that reason. I don't accept it now. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, have they ever, ever, ever shown her wearing Kathy Kane wearing a longer wig? Um, I don't know. I, I asked Grant Morrison. Dear Julie and Bob, stupendous. That's the word I use to describe the return of the original Daredevil, Batwoman. Bob Brown did a stupendous job, stupendous job on both the heroines and the villains, and those were the bad old days. And while I might have complained about the bit of lack of backgrounds. The dynamic figures and spacing made up for it admirably. I also found Bob's version of the Batwoman costume interesting. It looked much better than the original, which appeared to be black and yellow highlights. The solid yellow in the fur trim looked great. The script was perfect. I couldn't have asked for more. I've been wondering where you've been team up these two, and it came off very well. I really enjoyed the tie-ins to Dick Grayson, Commissioner Gordon, Gotham City, and all the rest. Whereas you simply could have brought together the four characters by sheer coincidence. You added much more to it and solved the problem logically and with continuity. I was also pleased that you incorporated the Isle of a Thousand Thrills into the script. Very interesting was the way you handled the bit about Bab chasing her name to Batwoman. I have to admit that I thought, think it would have hurt the character to do so. You settled the problem here and I love the reason why. In my book too, there will always be one and only Batwoman. Scott R. Taylor. Portland, Texas. Dear Julie and Bob, well, I guess it's curtains for the Batgirl and Robin team. Why? Because the team of Batgirl and Batwoman is better. Bob Rosakis, take a bow. Those were the bad old days. It was one of the best stories to come from DC this year. The highlight was, of course, the return of Batwoman. Kathy Kane has been missing from these pages for a long time. Too long. And I hope we see her again soon because she is too interesting to retire again. Perhaps she could share the backup spot and be if with Manbat, Bill Matheny, Titusville, Florida. Grant Morrison wrote that. It's <laughs> <laughs> like more Kathy Kane, please. It's... Before commenting on Batwoman's future status, allow us to present the other side of the coin. Far out. All right, you. Dear people, it should be fairly obvious to all that Batman Family Number no. Ten wasn't a form was a formula issue. Two heroines are attracted to the scene of a crime where they team up against two villains. From there on, it is usual slugfest until the malefactors are captured and the stars go on in their merry ways. But the delightful thing about Mr. Rosaka's tale is the fact that he threw enough nostalgia to make us forget that formula. It was nice to see all the old timers out of the mothballs again. But once it's probably enough. Batwoman certainly shouldn't be resurrected any more than the Batman, Batwoman, Bat-anything days are hopefully gone for good. The Cavalier was also neat. If ever there was a stereotyped villain, it is he. But oddly enough, it makes the nostalgic fellow worthy of a comeback. Mr. Rosakis seemed to have a lot of fun with him. What with the Cavalier reduced to a stealing jewelry case and handbags at the airport and wittily pondering between the experience and gallantry. E.B. Webb. Nostalgic, eh? That's the same way our next correspondent, another old-timer, felt. Whoa! 
<laughs> You're like a combination of like every commercial voiceover, Steve Wacker and Dan Slotter together. Okay. <clears throat> oh no 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 no! I'm I'm not excited enough to be Dan Slot. Look out, Spider Island! Oh, it's everywhere! It's contagious. Hashtag: Make sure you go on Twitter, folks. Here's someone who writes in all the time, Bob Rody. Reading Batman Family Issue 10 was a nostalgic experience, not because of the three so-called old-timers who appeared along with Batgirl, but because the issue gave me a thrill I never felt, I felt very few times since it first came to me when you gave us the first meeting of the flashes of Earths 1 and 2. There's, there's something enormously appealing in stories wherein the original virgin meets his or her successor, and Rosaka's story was a beautiful example of just that. It's funny that such special events as the revival of Batwoman would have taken so long, but it was inevitable. After reviving everyone on Earth 2, Earth, Earth X, Earth S, and Earth whatever, <laughs> you had to get around to reviving Earth 1 characters. Most of us weren't around for the golden age, but a lot of us remember Batwoman. Indeed, it's probably our constant demand that led to her revival in the first place, right? But now that you've revived her, don't let Kathy Kane slip back into oblivion. She's no spring chicken, huh? That's no rationality. You can present a backup series or untold stories of Batwoman in her prime. Bob Rody, Dayton. <laughs> Dayton, Ohio. Oh my gosh. Where are these Kathy Kane fans coming from? I have no idea. <laughs> it's, it's like the Dark Knight Rises prologue where like, like they break out and start chanting, Kathy Kane, Kathy Kane. And Grant Morrison's bane. Uh, Katrina Meldoff. Well, that's why his name's Morrison, so he could be Morrison's uh, uh, alias. Uh, those of you who don't know, Grant Mor- who are listening, Grant Morrison is heavily in love with Kathy Kane. Like, heavily. And it's not just because he wrote Kathy Kane in an issue. Like, like in his book, Super Gods, he legitimately has an affection for the character, which is beyond the expected. My gosh! Kathy Kane retiring again? No way! She is a vital part of the Batman family, and I hope to see you in some more stories now that the magazine is going all new. Warren Morrison, Covers, Texas. If Batwoman can return to action, why not the original Batgirl, too? Since Dick is falling for Babs and is also interested in Lurianton, why not complicate the matter by bringing back back Robin's original girlfriend, Madel Holmes, St. Thomas, Ontario, I suppose. Oh my gosh, that's all we need is to bring someone back like that. Okay. They did. Like, like right after this, they brought her back. Oh, it's going to be like a love rectangle. Uh, well, Rita Roddy is quite correct in his assumption that fan support resulted in the return of Batwoman. If there is a similar push for Betty Batgirl gain, who knows what could happen? Uh, despite D.B. Webb's disagreement, the overwhelming cheers for BF10 have spurred us into getting Kathy Kane back in the costume again, as you'll see next issue. Dear Mr. Swartz, I just picked up the latest Batman family and find I'm still disturbed by the way you handled Robin. Well, when the character was created back in 1940, he was established as a person of the younger set, 12 and under, who could, could identify with. Now, Robin's age in college, and so am I. But do I identify with Team Wonder? Nope. I relate to his chum, the Batman. Robin was created as a psychic. He looks like a psychic. He has a psychic name. 
I don't care if you publish his adventures until he sprouts long gray beard. He will always be a sidekick. Robin is, is Moore's element as a 12 and a 20-year-old. This is written by Dan DeVito. Today's comment by the public doesn't seem to be interested in reading about 12-year-old sidekicks anymore. Robin's a familiar face, which assures the public's success. But creatively, he can't find his groove. And now that I've gotten you upset, do you want to hear my solution? Huh? Robin's name and costume suggests and were fashioned after Robin Hood. Why not take that name and carry it? Let him be Robin Hood, even to the point of working outside the law to see justice done. Let people refer to him as Robin Hood. Most importantly, give him a band of helpers. Let the former sidekick have his own sidekicks. They could be the younger sidekicks, which we call them merry men. And how we can start the whole cycle again? How about it? Craig Baldwin, Fairville, Ohio. That is the worst idea I ever heard. <laughs> it's almost like the Red Hood. This is like the inspiration for Red Hood. Oh. Like, like, the, give him sidekicks and call them the merry men. And like, what? <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Robin, rooters of the world. <laughs> We call upon you to defend the Teen Wonder in his current status. Or, do you agree with this bold man's suggestion? Signed, Bob Rizakis. Hey, that's me! Oh my gosh. (sighs) These letters, they're always so interesting. I do have to say that some of those ads, like, I wish they still sold those superhero socks. Because they have Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Robin, and I would definitely, I would buy those superhero socks. But I like Batman pipping them yep. like behind his cape. Yeah, it looks like he's throwing the socks at a criminal. <laughs> We're gonna take a short break, and uh, when we come back, we will review Batgirl number three, Birds of Prey number three, and Huntress number three. And now Zias's Radio Hour, featuring the Twelve Days of Christmas by the acapella group Straight No Chaser. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree. On the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. On the fourth day of Christmas, the third day of Christmas, my true love gave to me five golden rings. For calling birds and two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. On the ninth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. Christmas, my true love gave to me. You better not cry. You better not in a pear tree. On the ninth, on the eighth, on the seventh, the halls with clouds of holly. Here we come, the west wind among the lanes of five golden rings. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, tumble boars, head in hand, bear I be decked with base and partridge in a pear tree. On the eleventh day of Christmas, my true love gave to me eleven pipers piping, ten lords a leaping, nine ladies dancing, eight maids and lassies, ten swans a swimming, six geese a lake, five golden rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and Rudolph the red nosed reindeer. On the twelfth day of Christmas, my I true love gave to me. I made it out of clay, and when it's dry and ready, a dreidel I shall play. Oh, dreidel, dreidel. Sorry. <laughs> On the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. Do, 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 do. <laughs> 
on the twelfth day my true love gave to me Twelve drummers drumming like Olympus upon the Serengeti Eleven pipers piping Ten Okay, and we have returned. I, I splashed some water on my face after all the craziness that ensued in 1977. But here we are in 2011, and the last month in 2011, in fact. The year has gone by so quickly. So many things have happened, especially in September. But anyways, here we have, first up, back row number three, A Breath of Broken Glass. I'm giving my, my fellows a break and going to be doing these uh, these... What are these? Recaps. There you go. And how come you never said anything to me? There was never a good time. Right, because you only had a year, and we only hung out every night. Not, not, not every night. You know, and, and it's not like I didn't try, Rachel, but the, oh, things got in the way, you know, like, like Italian guys or ex-fiancés or, or, or Italian guys. <laughs> Hey, there was one Italian guy, okay? And do you even have a point? The point is, I, I don't need this right now, okay? It's, it's too late. I'm with somebody else. I'm happy. This ship has sailed. Okay, so what are you saying? You can just sort of put away feelings or whatever the hell it was that you felt for hey, me. Hey, I've been doing it since the ninth grade. I've gotten pretty damn good at it. All right, fine. You go ahead and you do that, all right, all right Ross? All right. I don't need your stupid shit. Good. And you know what? Closure. Writer Gail Simone, penciler Artie Siaf, inker Vicente Sefuentes, and colorist Ulysses Ariola. The issue begins with Batgirl bursting out through the window of Mirror's previous residence, headset in capote, which means on head, and speeding towards a speeding train. She brings us up to speed on Mirror and his motivations, just as she hits the roof of the train. To complement this narration, she also continues to discuss her miracle and hopes for another small one. Now, inside the train, Batgirl looks for Rupert Ansel, a man who previously fell onto the tracks but was rescued by a good Samaritan. Mirror does not like this and wants this man to die the way he was meant to. For every Rupert Ansel saved by a stranger from certain death, there are thousands who die needlessly. Thousands. Trying to prevent the bomb from detonating, Batgirl grabs Rupert Ansel and desperately tr- explains to Mirror that he cannot de- detonate the bomb because she should have died that first night in issue one when she was hanging off of a building and it would not correct the almost death if she were to be blown to bits. Good argument, Batgirl, but you forgot about the Good Samaritan. Insert explosion noise here. 
Later, Detective McKenna is trying to convince the commish that he needs her back on the force, but he is not budging from the protocol when a cop's partner is shot. After they hang up, McKenna accuses the commish of having a blind spot when it comes to bats. Back at police headquarters, Babs comes to visit her father for lunch. He feels like there is something amiss, and while she could could say what is wrong, she chooses not to. Pops is worried about his daughter and wants her to be careful so that she does not revert back to her wheelchaired state. Later that night, Batgirl goes to the police impound yard in order to retrieve her cycle and is met by none other than Mile High Nightwing. They go for a ride on the bike, something which Babs likes, and Nightwing tells her that he and Batman are both concerned about her. In order to get him off the subject, she decides to start a little game of tag. As Babs leaps through the air, she flashes back to near the beginning of the relationship a few years ago. Babs narrates her feelings, and it is clear that both have have a strong attraction to one another. Back then, leaping across rooftops, they were actually friends. Back in the present, Babs considers what they are right now before the game of tag ends. Then, in a bacchic frenzy, Batgirl starts to beat on Nightwing until he calms her down by explaining that he and Batman are not concerned because they doubt her, but because they love her. In a tender moment, Babs touches Nightwing's hair, cuts a lock, holy heck, that is a large lock, of her own hair, gives it to him, and asks that she be allowed to continue her mission on her own. Yes, she cares about him, but she needs to do this alone. Dick complies and leaps off the building. Hopefully he had a good grasp on that lock of hair. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Can't wait to get into this again. I know, right? (laughs) Who wants to start here? I'll go because uh, I'll, I'll be quicker. Um, you may have heard uh, my thoughts already on TBU, and I'm really interested to get to, to Josh's. So, like, I'll just say, like, like the, um, what I thought of the issue real quick. Um, I'm liking the art, although I think that by this point, that Barbara Gordon's really off. She looks kind of weird when she's talking to Commissioner Gordon. Um, the intro sequence with her trying to stop the mirror seemed very, like, Stephanie Brown-esque to me. As in, like, she's saying, everything was going so well. I almost caught the mirror all by myself. And it's like, you know, she, I don't care what, what, what retcons they put in here. We know that she's at least been a superhero once before. So why is she, like, her confidence level is, like, shot completely. And it's really, like, annoying to see this. Um, and the, the mirror's logic for killing people is, is like, seems inconsistent to me. Um, even if it was a trick. Uh, I did think that for how much Gail Simone doesn't seem to write Barbara Gordon in character, she does write Nightwing very well. I mean, his concern and his, his dialogue here felt very natural. And um, I was actually taking the issue the most out of all three so far in the series. But the second Barbara Gordon, like, or I should say, the second Batgirl started beating on Nightwing, it just, it just, it just went off the, off the rails for me. Like, it, there's no excuse for this. I don't care how upset or angry she is or annoyed at him. She starts beating him to the point where he starts bleeding. And, like... It's, it's just completely uncalled for, and it's forced tension. If you can't understand, like, how, how bad this is, reverse the roles, and if it were Nightwing who was feeling uh, emo and down on himself, and Barbara was trying to, like, talk him out of it, and then he starts just beating the crap out of her, and then he he says, stop it, okay, stop, 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 and, like, she still, like, starts to fight him, like, what's her problem? Uh, that was bad. The, the cutting of the hair made little sense to me. Um, and I, I do still kind of like the issue for like the, 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 the crazy shipper moments because they're kind of amusing, but that last scene really killed it, uh, much of the enjoyment for me. 
and I'll, I'll hand it over to Stella and Josh. Okay, oh my goodness. Well, <laughs> this whole, like, because we have now a five-year history between, like, the DC Universe, Dick and Babs' relationship, they didn't meet each other, like, and start, like, until they were, like, 17, like, until he was, like, 16 or 17, and she would have been older, 18 or 19 or something, but apparently he's her first crush. Now, Don and I talked about this earlier. You don't get crushes, like, you get crushes on people when you're in middle school. Like, I don't know why Babs waited so long to get her first crush, but whatever. But it's this whole thing, oh, we grew up together. Okay, that could work post-crisis a little bit. That could work pre-crisis. But now, like, oh, yeah, when we were, you know, we turned, like, 17 to, you know, 20 together. We sure grew up together. Like, that doesn't make sense. And then, like, remember when we were the children, the greatest children of the world, you know, with my ballet and your, you know, and your acrobatics. And it's like, they weren't children. Like, you're using the idea of Dick and Babs as childhood sweethearts from other continuities, but trying to apply it to a time line that doesn't support it, which is one of the big problems with the DC new. And yeah, like Donovan, it's like this whole, I, I guess it's supposed to be like female empowerment, like, ooh, who's that man think he is? He's worried about her? He doesn't think she could take care of himself? Yeah, he's worried about her. He's showing some concern for her. Is that okay? Should he not be concerned about her? Should he Should he not love his friend? Is that is that a bad thing? Yeah, I guess. He, he should just not care about her. That would have been much less insulting. Oh, he, he thinks that she can put up... Yeah, yeah, yeah. She better show him who's boss. Like, if roles were diverse, it would be absolutely disgusting. Like, it's... She immediately attacks him. Immediately. And, and, like, she's very hostile to him for no reason. Like, oh, I better prove my, myself, and I better show him, you know, girl power, all that. I hated that. And I read this the same day that I reread the first volume of Birds of Prey, issue 8, and their relationship is presented oh, so much better there. Yeah. I know. I read these the same day. That is, yeah, stark contrast. A very stark contrast. And that was just... and. The hair thing confused all of us, but you went back to the flashback, and, like, from what I can understand, like, he talked about Barbara's red hair as if it was, like, some unattainable thing that he hopes he can earn one day, so I guess that that's what that represented. But that was so weird. What? Like, who does, like, leave me alone, here's a piece of my hair. <laughs> what? what, what, what? But no, you guys do not know how much we have made fun of that and how we continue to make fun of that off the air. And why do we do it? Because it's weird. (laughs) If your ex-girlfriend ever comes up to you, rips off a piece of her hair and gives it to you, that would be like one of those moments that you like once she would leave the room, you would all be like, what was that? What a crazy psycho. Like she's been living with Alyssa far too long. Like that's like. (laughs) Like, uh, Alyssa must have, like, given her that advice. Like, remember, if you ever see an ex, <laughs> cut her hair, cut your hair off. Boy, if only I had a knife to do that with. And then Barbara thought, that reminds me, I should be, I should get Alyssa a big butcher knife for Christmas, which she will in the next issue. Oh. So, yeah, if this is, now, I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but thankfully Kyle Higgins tried to write them a little better when he dealt with it in Nightwing yeah. and basically had Barbara be like, oh, yeah, all that stuff that I did was messed up, so I'm totally going to be better about this now. Yeah, and what I would say other... Nightwing 4, I mean, that is kind of getting ahead, but I, I thought that was – I really enjoyed their team dynamics. I thought that was well done. Yeah, because they weren't beating each other up for no reason, because because they cared about each other. If I had a friend show up to my 
they say, hey, Josh, I was worried about you. I wouldn't fall to the ground and say, how dare you? Remember when we were the greatest Remember when we were the greatest children in the world? What are you talking about? I didn't meet you until you were 18. We grew up together. You were first crush somehow. Yeah, this this was, um, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Stella? Yeah, I did. Uh, you know, one time in San Diego, I was actually really concerned about Josh because he came forward about an alcoholic problem and and that he had one time. <laughs> and I was, I, I, you know, I kind of sat on the bed next to him and I tapped his shoulder, you know, awkwardly, pat, pat. And I said, you know, I'm worried about you. And here comes like his fist out of nowhere. And luckily we've gotten over this, but I agree that it was out of place. Yeah, I, I didn't like it when you yeah, socked the hair off. <laughs> you did he shaved all of his hair for me put it in an envelope and I'm so waiting for it to arrive oh, the greatest children yeah. ever when we were the greatest kids in the world yeah oh man well this issue you know it starts right off where the last one left off so there's certainly little time for you to catch up or get confused which is that's fine Batgirl's narrative certainly does a suitable job refreshing our memories though it does seem as if the plot takes some liberties and conveniences a really good example of this, I think, is the headset. I just thought it was really too convenient that, you know, I don't know. She just picks up this headset. Like, she absolutely needs it. I feel like the scene could have gotten along fine without communication with Mirror, but whatever. I don't really get Barbara's change of heart all of a sudden in regards to miracles. Um, before, she was kind of against them. She didn't understand why she deserved them. And now, against a naysayer like Mirror, she becomes a big proponent of miracles and almost treats them lightly. So I don't like this back and forth. The scene on the train between Batgirl and Ansel felt awkward with forced dialogue and jokes that are supposed to be funny but don't really come off. You know, when she grabs him and he says, I'm married, young lady. I mean, I I don't know. I didn't really smile at that. Well, I never. I know. I don't like the fact that McKenna comments on Gordon's physical appearance, calling him an attractive older man. I I don't know. But I'm intrigued to see uh, what's going to happen with McKenna as a character and whether she's going to be kind of a one-person Batgirl stopping force. I don't like the what-if scene. Man, all these things are like, I don't like, I don't like. I don't like the what-if scene between Jim and Babs. It it forces a lot of much-needed story progression to be thrown into off-panel land and really compressed into the dialogue. Up until now, like, we realized there was some tension between her and Gregor, but now it just seems like, oh, it's done. It's done. She has this degree. She's having trouble. We never learned anything about her having trouble finding a job. Like, this is all happening in this one panel. And that's really disappointing because I think this book, being about Batgirl, I want to know about this character. So all of this stuff, like, would be really fun to learn about her as a character, but we just don't find it out. I do wonder about all this sudden information that her condition could deteriorate. Is there a backup plan for this book, I wonder? If this doesn't work out, are we just going to shove her back in the, in the chair? And then we have the Nightwing scenes. However much I like Nightwing and Babs, and you all know how much because they're like my main shipper couple besides Hawkgirl and Green Lantern, it seems like a strange time to run this story, especially in the midst of the Mirror storyline. I also wonder about the point of it all. Is it really a way to get Batgirl on her feet again and on her own, or is it a way to get Nightwing out of the picture? And I don't think I'm paranoid here because I think Raya was the same purpose. Let's get Dick and Babs separated right now, get them away from each other. I feel like this is kind of DC's plan. 
The entire latter half of the issue is really shipperific and reads like a fan fiction. I think we talked about this the first time we read it, fellows. We were like, this is like fan fiction. Yeah, uh, that was your fan fiction. <laughs> of the yeah. worst kind. Oh, gosh. The feelings between the two are obviously strong as Bab- Babs reflects on her feelings for him. I like the tag sequence blending into the backflash, though the backflash seriously draws into question this timeline, and I can't think about it or else I will commit myself into a padded room. I cannot even begin to tell you, and this is such like a small detail, how upset I am that Babs constantly refers to her background in ballet. Did this bother any of you? Ballet? No, it's not ballet. It's gymnastics. Gymnastic. I don't know. It really bothers me. Did it bother any? Yeah, it's more. Did you say it's more girly? Yeah. I don't know. And I, 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 I forgot. I, you know, I didn't know that she was a gymnast and not a ballet dancer. But I had forgotten when you mentioned it. I was like, yeah, that's either that's Gail Simone just like either completely forgetting it or that's a specific change for exactly no reason. Oh my gosh. What did you think about that particular detail, Josh? I. Uh wasn't bothered by it as much as you were because <laughs> i it it's a little detail that i yeah. that i didn't I, i've never been focused too much on her background in that way that i would know but if it was i'm sure if i was then yes i it would have bothered me a lot more but i was too busy being distracted by ripping out hair and remember when we grew up together you know from like age 17 to age 21 yeah yeah we sure grew up together as children in that time the fact that Babs talks about her first crush, yeah, being on deck really draws you in emotionally, but then I feel like the rug is certainly pulled out from under you with the ending. I think it makes sense that Babs gets upset with Nightwing, because this is certainly, this has happened before. You know, being perceived as weak or breakable has always been a negative catalyst for her. It's happened so many times uh, with her as Oracle. Uh, And, you know, she's lashed out at him for this reason, you know, misinterpreting his concern for her, but never physically. So while I think it is in character, this physical pummeling is certainly a little over the top, a little overdramatic. So I agree with that. A little. (laughs) I'm sorry, a lot? Is that better? (laughs) No, go ahead. (laughs) While her feelings may make sense, I do agree that she gets, yeah, a little out of control and goes too far, which is why I said, you know, the Bacchic frenzy, because those Bacchic characters way back when, they do crazy (laughs) things. And then she cuts a lock of her hair, uh, asks to do this, whatever this is, you know, alone, and nearly reveals all of her full feelings for him. Why the hair, though? Yes, does he recognize the implications of this? And I kind of talked about, like, the symbolism of of hair cutting. And we've seen this, you know, in, like, old English movies, Pride, Pride, well, not Pride and Prejudice, but Pride and Prejudice-esque movies where it's just like a symbol, a symbol of their love. And really cutting a lock of hair is almost giving someone control over you, like saying, you know, I belong to you. And way back when, it kind of started, like, way, way back when, you know, in the BCs. Um, This was a symbol of um, kind of control of their soul. But, I mean, I wouldn't say we're going in in that far. But it certainly is a memento. It's a strange memento. Does she kind of devote herself to him? But that goes against what she's saying. It is very, very confusing. And she does cut off a great deal of hair, actually, given the art. But I wonder where he stows it, actually. That would be great. If it ever pops up in another issue, I I don't know. I guess I would applaud it. Uh, some fun details. I did enjoy the the thing on the front of the subway car that said, for a good time, call the Red Hood. 
which I think we laughed and said, actually, it should say for a good time, call Starfire. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did like, there was a nice reference to the Skeleton Key story by Scott Snyder, and also a connection to Higgins' Nightwing when Dick makes his comment about redheads. You know, what is it about redheads? And finally, I do have to say that there were birds flying in the second page when Babs is on the train, so I wonder if actually Mephisto has something to do with this miracle, and it's one more day all over again. <laughs> but, I hope so, because that would be a nice <laughs> That'd be great. But I, I agree with Don that I think this was the best issue of the three, though there are many, there's still shortfalls or shortcomings, I guess, and, and I'm waiting. I'm waiting for it. You know, I'm waiting for the Babs we all know and love. So let's go around the horn, and what were your grades of this issue? F. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give that to me in, in a number? <laughs> oh, man. Zero out of five. No, zero out of ten. No, zero out of a hundred bats. Oh, zero. <laughs> okay. We, there's another thing we, we didn't mention, the fact that for some reason now, from now on, Barbara calls uh, Dick Richard for some reason, which yeah. uh, was explained in an interview in the most ridiculous reasons. But that's uh, for us. As for scores, because um, I, I I generally do enjoy uh, Nightwing's characterization, and I think the flashback is is while kind of corny, is a little bit harmless, but much of the issue kind of brings it down for me. So um, I give it a four and a half out of ten. Uh, I give it. I guess it's a higher score, seven out of ten. Um, I guess what, what was my other seven? Oh, the weird uh, the marriage. I did think it was better, but what just bring? Yeah, it does get brought down, but I guess not as heavy as heavy. I'm always a better grader, though, and then people accuse me of being harsh, but I'm more optimistic, I think, than people think I am. <laughs> so F, 4.5 and a 7. <laughs> That's great. Oh, man. Well, on to, are there any final comments on that, or are we on to bigger and better things? Oh, it better be better. Okay. Birds of Prey, number three, and I'll give you a little exciting thing because this is that I'm going to be doing an interview with Dwayne Sprzynski coming up, and I'm pretty stoked about that. I've already started writing my show notes, so I'm happy. I'll be asking him some heavy questions about, especially about number four, but that'll be for next time because some strange things happen. Birds of Prey, number three, you might think writer Dwayne Sprzynski, artist Jesus Saez, colors Alan Pasalacqua. The issue opens with Starling and Katana turned on Poison Ivy and Dinah trying to defend her and her own decision to invite her. Who else is more knowledgeable in chemicals and toxins and who else is immune? Starling calls her a terrorist and a killer, but Ivy tries to defend herself saying that she is no killer. All the while, news clippings of deaths linked to Ivy litter the page. Ivy gives them a little taste of her power when Starling and Katana go in for the kill. They both lose, but Starling drops a small explosive device at the feet of Ivy. Ivy asks to be allowed to show her powers before they decide to kick her out. Enter Donovan Morgan Grant yet again. What? <laughs> Ivy uses some hypnotic powers and probably some pheromones to get him to release the location of his Gotham City safe house. Don then utters a strange rhyme. Dinah gets a headache, the warehouse explodes, and Ivy shields them all from the blast as they leap from the building. Later, Dinah, Starling, and Katana go to investigate the safe house but find nothing there. Nothing besides some shreds of paper with important names on them. The team decides to find them before anything else happens to them. 
On an express train to Metropolis, the team, now with Ivy, splits up and goes on their various assignments. The plan is to roofie the targets, but things do not go as planned, especially when one of the enemy is masquerading as an old woman, with only Katana's sword being able to see it, and two more appearing behind Ivy and taking her out. Suddenly... Dinah begins hearing a voice in her head. The voice explains that there is another bomb and it is in her brain, planted during the first encounter slash hot kiss with Donovan. (laughs) Dinah calls off the team as the voice eggs her to tell a nursery rhyme. And that ends the issue. Well, seeing that I die a couple times in this issue, uh, I should go first. (laughs) Yeah, you should. Dying man's last request. Yeah. Uh, No, I, I like this issue. Um... I like it for a variety of reasons. I don't like Starling very much. But there's nothing wrong with her character. She just doesn't do it for me. But I do very much like Jesus Saez's art style. It's very clean, very expressive, and very nice looking. Um, I'm really, really, really liking how um, Swerzynski's writing Black Canary. Because I think, I don't don't know what it is. It's probably Gail Simone. I don't know. But, I mean, this is the kind of Black Canary I've always kind of imagined whenever uh, encountering the character or hearing the character. And, like, I think this is a very straightforward characterization. She's, she's authoritative. She's, she has, she's uh, um, endearing. And, you know, w- when they start fighting, she's, she's like, oh, come on, guys, what are you doing? Stop fighting like we're in Marvel Comics. Yeah. So I, I like the fact that she's written like that and the fact that she's a, a, uh, the main protagonist of this book. It's, it makes the book fun. The best part I liked about this was uh, Poison Ivy because um, I'm actually really digging her uh, uh, new design. I really like um, those black and green eyes she has, and to me, this is what how Poison Ivy should be. Very like kind of like super, not so much supernatural, but kind of like mysterious and almost otherworldly. Like you don't know how she's going to be, and like kind of really creepy in a very very like seductive way, in terms of how she blew me up, <laughs> or she didn't blow me up, or she, you know she was like talking to the guy who looks like me, but um, it was. I, I really, I really like that, and if that's how she's going to be for this title, I am very, very interested in reading this title even more so now. Um, I mean, I mean, this was, this wasn't the greatest thing ever, but it was fairly enjoyable. I'm not exactly sure why Ivy wants to join the Birds of Prey, um, but I don't really care because <laughs> she, she has written so well, and I thought the cliffhanger at the end was pretty good. So um, this, this was, I enjoyed this a lot better than Batgirl, obviously, and I thought that. Birth of Prey as a whole is a very solid title. Yeah, it is certainly, man, it is close to being one of my favorite titles. And I feel really bad with the harsh judgment that I made when, you know, the DC New 52 was first soliciting these things. Because I'm like, oh, man, why is Ivy on the front? This is just not going to work. But I think it's it's just such a well-done book. Um, I agree certainly with you about Starling that she's – I don't like her as much, but I'm certainly warn, warming to her. And I just had a laugh out loud with uh, issue number four, but I won't spoil anything. But just what she does to Dinah, it just kind of – I don't know. It makes me – makes me laugh i really did like the opening scene because it's realistic you know i like that some of the team don't agree with this decision and really bring up ivy's nature but then on the other side of the argument dinah attempts to justify her decision and and i think you know she does come up with some good arguments it doesn't really make sense that Starling is so against Ivy because she is a killer, though, because Katana in the previous issue was slicing and dicing people. And, yeah. you know, Dinah was commenting on 
I like how she's like I I like how she's uh, on my side and like she's fatally I don't know dangerous I I can't remember the exact words but that kind of seems a little hypocritical. I really like the page where Ivy tries to convince him that she's not a killer and then you see the different news clippings uh, you know attesting to the opposite of that like thirteen dead due to a chemical explosion or whatever. I just thought that was clever. Ivy's audition was great because it's, it really showcases her powers as well as the methods and strengths slash weaknesses of Starling and Katana. I was a little confused with the scene involving Ivy and Donovan uh, because I couldn't really tell whether it was all happening in his head or if it was actually happening in the warehouse. But later she does the same thing with the subway engineer, so I do think that uh, the images you see are actually all in his mind. The explosion was a great plot point, um, and it was so simple, but it really forces the team together because, I mean, that was kind of like Ivy's initiation right there because she protects them all. So how great that one thing can do that. I like that the birds do more than kick butt. They investigate and think too, so it's great. It's more than just an action book. It seems like they're finally working as a team on the subway train. They all have a particular task to do and are working for the same thing. The interactions between them seem easy and fun. You know, Starling saying happy doping to Canary. But we still see the reservations that Starling has for Ivy's participation, and it continues an issue four some great lines come up from starling something weird to note about the federal judge is that his info on the little sheet the the shredded sheet that they find at the safe house says that he was born in 1943 which would make him around 77 years old but yet when you look at him on the subway train he looks like he's in his mid-40s so there was some sort of error there that was made i don't think anyone has caught that because i only caught that on my second read through Mid-70s is the new (laughs) mid-40s. Something like that. He takes Viagra. It's good for the skin. Starling really seems to be, you know, the dramatic one on the team as everything she does has to be some sort of big production. And, of course, it is always the old woman, isn't it? That's the, the sinister person. I like how all the issues connect in the scene with Dinah, and we learn, or we continue to learn more. And, yeah, I just, a solid issue that really continues to be fun, and we see the team continue to grow and grow together. And I think that's great because I think it would be unrealistic if everyone in issue one came together and they were all BFFs and painting their toenails and things like that. So it's really, they're working out issues and they're trying to figure out how they all go together. And I just, I'm loving this book. So do you have a grade, Don, for, for this issue? I would give it a solid eight. It was a very, very, very solid comic, and nothing really wrong with it. Not, not anything that would, that would put it in the upper stratosphere, but a very enjoyable comic. And eight I out of would, ten bats. Eight out of ten, and I would give it nine out of ten bats. So, uh, or birds. Yeah, I guess I go with birds when I do birds uh, of prey. Nine out of ten whoops. birds. No, that's okay. I mess up with Dustin all the time. I say random things. Nine out of ten birds. Very. I, birds. I highly recommend this uh, this comic if you're not checking it out. The final comic that we are doing, Huntress number three of six, part three, Crossbow at the Crossroads. Writer Paul Levitz, penciler Marcus Toe, inker John Dell, and colorist Andrew Dollhouse. The issue opens with Moretti's yacht docking at a harbor as Huntress looks on. Nearly ready to take a shot, she is shocked to see the policia arrive, not to clean up, but to assist Moretti. The officers take posts around the yacht while some go inside to relax. Huntress knocks some outside guards out and makes her way onto the yacht in order to spy. She learns that Moretti is escorting Ibn Hassan around Pompeii. They are surveying it in advance of the chairman's meeting with diplomats of Italy. 
Helena then calls her reporter friend Alessandro. Don't call my babe. Don't call my babe. Alessandro. I'm not your babe. I'm not your babe. Richard Grayson. And warns, <laughs> <laughs> and warns that the chairman is from Kufra and is seeking asylum. His son, Ibn Hassan, is also known as Mustafa and is a morally shady character as well. Helena makes her way to Pompeii, spies on the setup for the meeting at the theater of Pompeii, changes into her hunter's garb, and begins taking out the guards one by one. Mustafa and Moretti leave, and Huntress only has to take down the lion. Back at the yacht, Moretti continues with the planned meeting and asks Mustafa to delight in one of the women. As the setting changes to war-torn Kufra, the chairman explains his plans to his advisors, looks upon some new girls that he will send to Moretti, and plans on breaking them in before sending them. Back at the theater of Pompeii, Huntress is having a rough go of things with the lion and loses her crossbow and her footing. She is able to recover, gives him a love tap of the Shiva kind, wipes the dirt off, and vows to take Moretti down next. Okay. I guess maybe I'll switch it up. I'll, I'll go first. Let's see. Well, I guess this issue, it, it wasn't as good a, as the first two, and I've really been loving this series. I didn't think that it was as straightforward or easy to follow as the previous issues. Exposition involving the chairman and his son really seemed like a lot of information thrown at us really quickly. So it truly took me a couple of read-throughs to completely understand it. Uh, the the big thing to get over is that Ibn Hassan and Mustafa are the same person, and that was something that like I had to understand first. I continue to enjoy seeing the relationship with Huntress and Alessandro, this time with Alessandro sort of acting as a male oracle for Huntress, and I think that's that's great to see. It may be the first time that I've commented on it, but I really love the setting of the book. Um, you know, as a Latin teacher, I love Italy, obviously, for all of the, the wealth of um, culture and history that it has, and it's great to see Pompeii in a book, and it's so right to see all the dogs in the street in Pompeii, because I've been there, and there are so many dogs. And then it was also great to see the theater of Pompeii, and it's just clear that the writer and the artist did a lot of research, so I really appreciate that. But my my word, they're destroying pieces of ancient history, which was a little little bothersome. How dare they? Sure. I know. Oh, I liked finally seeing Huntress in action, fighting more than just simple thugs. It's great to see her using her brains as well as her skills, so we're really creating her as a well-rounded character, which I feel like we haven't really seen Huntress portrayed as um, before this. I'm not sure what to think of the new antagonist introduced. We knew there was someone more important than Moretti, but I wonder if this is just too much. Could we not have just stayed in Italy and kept it simple rather than adding political intrigues on top of it? The Italian state certainly has a lot to worry about, um, what with corruption, among other things. So not as good as the others, but it's still, um, I think it's a worthwhile book to pick up. I kind of want to steal all of Dustin's review because he pretty much nailed it on the head when we did this interview, which has not been released yet as of this recording. But <laughs> I uh, enjoyed this as well. I've been enjoying the the, uh, the entire miniseries up to this point. I mean, it, I think it, I think it's a very solid miniseries. It's not one of the most engaging stories, but it's a very well-rounded story. Marcus Toe Marcus Toe kind of carries the the whole miniseries because he is really that excellent of an artist and. Um, one talking point that I'll repeat here from TBU is that like there's a lot of like um, there's there's a lot going on with like the whole uh, women trade international trading over here 
And um, Huntress as a character has always been kind of depicted as overtly attractive. But Marcus Toad does it in a way that is appealing and realistic at the same time. I mean, he, he has a very, I don't want to say cartoony style, but a very, like, kind of stylized style that comes off as very natural. And there's really no fan service here because that would just be annoying with the tone of the, the situation going on with, like, women trafficking. Um, the shot where Helena is transforming, that's transforming. The shot where Helena is changing into Huntress, you know, with her shirt open. Like, that could, be, that could, be, that could have been done by, like, like, if that was done by Gillian Marks, that, that would have been done for the money shot. But that's kind of like, in here, it just seems like, you know, oh, she just happens to be hearing something as she's in the middle of changing. So it comes off as realistic. It come comes off as attractive, but it does, doesn't come off as distracting. The story is kind of moving at a, at a slower pace than I would have preferred. But by this point, I think cause since we're ha- at the halfway point of the miniseries, we should see some action. We've already had when she fought that, um, that big, huge guy. Mm-hmm. So I am digging this story pretty much. And um, I'm, I'm interested to see where the, how the next issue is because it seems like there will be no going back in terms of her, her uh, uh, quest in Italy. So, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty good issue again. I, I probably would agree with you on the um, on the pacing. I think the first two did well with the pacing, but this one, it, I don't know. I felt like a lot of the elements in this issue could have been put uh, in the first two and then shortened this miniseries. Because this mini's out of six, isn't it? I believe so. Yeah. It's uh, out of yeah, six. Yeah, because I know Penguin's out of five. So I just wonder, like, do we have enough information to keep it going? Or, you know, is six a little, is it a little too much? So I guess we'll see. But uh, did you give a grade? I'm sorry. I did not. I will give this, I will give this seven out of ten bad. Or no, no, no. Well, Seven out of ten cannolis. And I agree with uh, Donovan Sullivan lives again. Yeah, seven out of ten cannolis. Sullivan. Yeah. Well, that's it for the reviews. So the last thing we have are Shipper Spotlight, which I'm excited to bring other people on for this. And then our literary recommendations, which may or may not be books, they may be comics, whatever, whatever that may be. I Shippers. Let me tell you about shippers. Get over your own shipping bullshit. Let, let, let me tell you about shippers. <laughs> get over get get over your own shipping bullshit. Shipper. I love shippers. 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 Let me tell you about shippers. Be not talking about that. Ship, ship, shippers. I love shippers. Dick and Babs. Dick, Dick, Dick and Babs. Batman and Cat, Catwoman. There we go for the shippers. Batman's married to the Joker. To the Joker. There better not be Damien, Seth, Seth, Stephanie. Shippers, I'll kill them. Dick and Babs. So remember that shipper spotlight is a segment where in, <laughs> in two minutes or less, uh, I, I pick a couple. The couple, I, I, I tell you about the... <laughs> Are you laughing at this? I tell you the first hint of romance, and then whether it's hot or not, and kind of my reasonings behind that. So I did, readers, listeners, whatever you are, I did say that I do not approve of slash, slash. Now, I don't want four slash, because I kind of have to go back on this because of the shipper couple that I picked. Four slash like Batman and Flash. If you gave that to me in an email, I would nix it right away because, no, I'm not going to do that. However, if this is like an actual like couple together, 
I will I will allow this. And and I'm actually picking one, Maggie Sawyer and Kate Kane. Okay. First hint of romance, Detective Comics number 856. And this is actually the first time they meet. Uh, when they both meet at a charity ball that, that Kate's stepmother is actually hosting. Uh, and the two actually dance. And Maggie mentions that she and Toby are no longer together. And she asks Kate for her phone number. But things don't really progress until in this latest volume, or I guess this first volume of Batwoman. And I guess Batwoman number one, they meet at a police station and they talk and, and kind of forward around and then say there's going to be a date. Batwoman number two, they actually go to, I guess you'd call that a club or a bar. And then Batwoman three is probably one of my favorite issues romantically. Oh. It was just, it ends on an absolutely wonderful, tender, emotional, and romantic note. It really makes the relationship worthwhile and such a wonderful alternative to the Catwoman-Batman sexplicit relationship that we saw in Catwoman 1 and 2. So, is this couple hot or not? I would say that it is hot. Especially after issue 4. Okay, let's not talk about <laughs> <laughs> I had to do it, sorry. Oh, man. Uh, who wants to go next? Okay, well, the couple that I'm going to be doing is uh, Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon's hair. First <laughs> oh, gosh. First hint of romance in um, a flashback during Batgirl number three when they're kids and they're talking about how her hair is some unattainable thing. Uh, and then, of course, who can forget, you know, the shipwreck moment um, when Barbara ripped off her hair and gave it to Dick Grayson in his hands. You know, which is now in his possession, and it's probably in a trophy case in his little Nightwing cave. Who knows? But it's we, – we all know. Um, I've been onto fanfiction.net, and the stories between Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon's hair, oh, my God. There's like – there's more on there than, than you would even imagine. Hot or not, I would say definitely hot. You know, it's – I mean, the love between a man, a man and his ex-fiance's girlfriend, it's – um. It's, it, that, that is a very special and tender thing, and I'm very glad that Gail Simone gave us that. I think I'm going to have to read that books. fan fiction story live at some point. Oh, I yeah. Well, oh, well, let's write it right now. Yeah. <laughs> Dick Grayson woke up in the middle of the night. He was, he was lonely. He was cold. He needed comfort. He was, <laughs> he was, he was surely oh just, like, just like in that issue of Azra. <laughs> oh. He went downstairs to his trophy case pressed his hands against the, against the glass and said, you are too beautiful to be caged. He opened up the glass cage and held Barbara's hand, hair in his hand, rubbed it against his cheeks. Why couldn't life be like this all the time? Why? Every few weeks, Barbara Gordon had, <laughs> every few weeks, Barbara Gordon had come to his apartment demanding for her hair back. Dick lied, said that he lost it or burned it or dropped it on the roof because it was a silly thing to hold on to, but he knew the truth. Maybe Barbara knew on some level too, but her hair, it is what it is what he'd been imagining he would obtain since he was 16 years old. Now it was his. With Barbara's hair, he could do anything. Four weeks earlier, when he had been fighting the Joker, he was about to lose. He was about to get a crowbar to the head. He took Barbara's hair out of his utility belt, clutched it, and it gave him the inner strength to beat Joker and save Gotham. Uh, to be continued. Well, it's going somewhere, but, but we can't say that on the spot, I guess. It's true. Um, <laughs> yeah, while all this is happening, Batman is looking through a window. <laughs> L- little does he know that I swapped out Barbara's hair for some red grass. For Vicky Vale. Oh, my God. For, for Vicky Vale's hair. Oh, that'd be awful. Ah! 
<laughs> okay, Don, what is your shipper spotlight pick? Uh, Josh will appreciate this because, uh, as I said, I said elsewhere, I'm a big Tim Drake fan, and in the height of my Tim Drake fandom, his girlfriend was Ariana Jurchenko. Hot or not couple, Tim and Ariana. Ariana first appeared in the third Robin miniseries, aptly titled Robin 3. Um, she was introduced to Tim Drake on the streets, I believe, but she was in, eventually kidnapped uh, by the KGB's men and assumed to be dead before we found her working in, like a, I believe it was a meth lab or drug lab or some, some such thing. Robin saved her with the help of the Huntress, and um, from then on in the title, we see that Tim Drake and Ariana are dating. Uh, so, so they are they are pretty hot together um, until they decide to get too hot at one point in Robin issue forty when Ariana wants the, her relationship with Tim to go to the next step. Okay. If you know what I mean, uh, Tim is is uh, feeling awkward and says he'd rather wait until they're a little older. They go through some uh, relationship hijinks. The uh, the Gotham City earthquake happens, and then through all this, Tim eventually finds himself attracted to spoiler, and then they eventually break up before Robin issue sixty. Um, at the end of the day, there, w- there wasn't a relationship that lasted all that long, but it was a significant portion of Robin title in Tim's life. Hot or not, I say hot. Is this also what kind of spawned the um, Jack, Drake, and uh, TV relationship? Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. The, 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 the abusive relationship. He just yeah. that TV would, would bane it to Batman's back. So this is a nice connection, at least to the, the previous episode, because Ariana was... Uh, certainly brought up in, in in several questions, I would say. So I couldn't help myself. <laughs> no, that's no. I'm glad I learned a lot right there. Um, I think the last time we saw her, she was a waitress um, right after No Man's Land. Oh, oh poor Ariana. I know. God, I hate those characters that are thrown away. Well, who knows what she's doing right now in the DC New Fifty Two? A prostitute, knowing like oh, the DC Fifty Two. Yeah, <laughs> Selena. Oh, you punched Ariana. <laughs> oh, man. You punched Uncle Bari. Uh, well, the final segment, literary... You punched rec- the TV. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> literary recommendations. Again, you know, you guys know that I've been kind of on a big comics kick after after San Diego. I think it just kind of lit a fire in me. And uh, currently, I'm reading Young Justice uh, at... After the prodding of, of both of these guys, actually, just kind of powering through. I think I'm on issue 45, something like that. So I have like 10 issues left. But it's just, it's a fun series. Uh, it took me a little while to get into it. Like Cass's series, I really got into it. Young Justice took me maybe three or four issues to get in. But I've really grown attached to the characters. Peter David does a great job um, having fun moments, and then, like other people describe it, like he will punch you in the gut with something. And there have been, in like, in the last day, I've read a couple issues. I guess it was forty three and forty four that have been really mm-hmm. heavy with just a lot of like other like tones and and themes and everything. So, but it's been really good. And Todd Knock love the. The um the art and everything. So he's certainly one guy that I would love to to meet next year at San Diego. But I heartily recommend it. It's just a it's a fun series and fifty five issues. So that's not you know it's not too bad, not much of an investment. So there's my recommendation. Looking at my uh, uh, illustration, Todd Doc did uh, of secret for being in Aww, San Diego. Oh, right he now. did it of secret. Oh, that's like I wish I would see it now or would have seen it. I think it's on Facebook. If you look at my SDCC album. Um, I need I need to get a frame though, still not framed. 
Uh, I would recommend um, another Peter David uh, book from that or, that he actually was writing around the same time, which is uh, Supergirl. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I um, Peter David's Supergirl series was really really good. I did a reread of it. I think I read like the full run, which is eighty something issues. A month or two ago, I read it in like three days, and it, it's really good. It gets really, really preachy in some places and way too religious. God is actually a regular supporting character, believe it or not, but there's a lot of uh, gripping emotional stuff in there, and like with the personal relationships between her and her two sets of parents, and what happens with her parents and supporting cast, and the final arc is one of my favorite comic book arcs ever. I, I've, I've been rereading on Justice too, but I'm not going to recommend that because I'll be cheating. Uh, <laughs> oh, you know what? I want to recommend um, uh, another uh, '90s story. It's nothing but the '90s. I want to recommend Batman Contagion. Uh, I actually, I actually picked this up um, um, through DCB service uh, online, and not not to shill away from Mill or comics, but I got I got this um, and read it around Thanksgiving. I read this a lot when I was a kid. Um, I was rented the store or checked out the story from the library, and I've not read this story since then about ten years. So I'm reading this again, and it's not so much nostalgia glasses. It's really very good. It's very engaging. Um, the story is that uh, there's this, this plague set upon Gotham City, which is like completely devastating. There is exactly there's, there's absolutely no no cure. Batman, you know, he's not fighting a villain. He's fighting a plague. How can he save Gotham? Everyone's going to being torn apart. People are you know being held up uh, in in buildings. You know, trapped away from uh, people who are getting infected. Robin is infected. Robin's going to die. Azrael and Catwoman are trying to find people who who said to have the cure in their DNA. Nightwing has a like, like a twelve foot tall uh, ponytail. It is very very uh, engaging, and it's, it's like a one shot story. Like, not a one shot story, but a pretty pretty quick read, I would imagine, in its uh, trade paperback. Um, I'm not sure if it's in print anymore. Um, I, I think it is. I think the, the, co- the copy I have is fairly new. It has a new DC Bullet uh, insignia. But if you can get your hands on it, please read Batman Contagion. Awesome. And when uh, Don says mail order comics, he really means milehighcomics.com. Oh, yeah. That's what I <laughs> Oh, boy. Well, if you survived this long, you, you made it. And there's only one last stretch to go, part three, our, our special commentary. And someone brought it to my attention that I may have erringly said it was Babs' first appearance, A Shadow of the Bat. What I really meant was Babs as Batgirl, because I, I do know that um, she appeared in the... Uh, episode with the the crazy the crazy machine that was creating things. Ardak. Yeah, it reminds me of um, Master Mold from X Men. But anyways, uh, so of course, send any questions or comments to Batgirl to Oracle at gmail dot com. Follow me or us on Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Follow us on Facebook. Sign the petition. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And thanks again to my two co-hosts. We have one more uh, leg left with them, luckily, and then I'll probably weep because we will be separated. But I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. And until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! Ah, I love
love a happy ending, don't you? You well, son of a peach. No, we don't. If that's another friend, I remember that. that I, I've seen that clip before, but yeah. I don't even know what to say about that. I got in trouble on the Batman universe. Dustin said, we don't talk about Lost on the... Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I made a reference. It was just a short reference. We don't talk about Lost on this show. Oh. No, that, that that's actually true. Um, There's um me and Nick... Back when we were on the comic cast or doing a special or something, like we both realized that we were into Lost, and like Dustin got mad because we were um, going on a long tangent about Lost, and he said, "Okay, next time anyone mentions Lost, they're getting booted from the call." Uh-oh. And I think I did, and he, and he actually booted me from the call. Oh my gosh! <laughs> well, I'm glad I've lasted longer. I guess it's a good thing. No, hey, hey, no, hey, hey. yeah, no, air, air, air. Can you guys hear the blender in the background? A little bit. <laughs> yeah, serve me up one of those frappes. Oh dear. Dear Journal, today Batman Family was extra special. I love the part where the readers were called sharp and Barbara kissed her dad. She's got our tailor. Signed pork chop. Dear Journal, this issue of Batman Family was really nice. I like the part where the guy pulled out the big gun. And, oh, oh I wish that there would have been more blood. Sign, Alyssa. Oh! <laughs> Is Bob Rezaka still alive? No. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I killed him after this story. I, oh. I, 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 I had to pretend to get married first. Oh, it's boy. like, it's like quiet, 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 comic book fans. We can't shoot him until the the San Diego guest speaker says you may now kiss the bride. Oh my god! Till death do you part. <laughs> okay. Bless you. Now this splash page immediately shifts. To- <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! It's because it wasn't you. It was like someone in Starbucks. Okay. Yeah. It was a female, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, no. The... Just don't get the muffin <laughs> that she sneezed on. That's all I wanted to say. Oh, I was going to have it. <laughs> oh. You would be the expert on questionable beards, wouldn't you, Don? What are you trying to say? <laughs> That's all I have to say. Uh, that, that does it. This, this beard goes tonight. Awesome. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I know, I was answering it, but I forgot you had to do the address. That's what, oh my god, was just <laughs> Yeah, I was like, oh, whoops, it's not my cue yet, I better go backstage. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna do it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but Birds of Prey number three, oh wow, I don't have the subtitle. What was the subtitle? It was... No one does it better than the Birds of Prey. What it is? You might yes, think. it is. Is it not my copy? No, you, it's, it's not. It's, it's you oh, might think. <laughs> I was like, wait, that's that song. Um... I know. <laughs> For those of you at home listeners, I did not read Huntress or Birds of Prey, so so they're gonna go on, and I'm going to experience the issue through their eyes, just like you guys. And away we go. Oh my gosh! I know. Hey there, listeners. There you are. There you go. Just plain Barbara Gordon. 
<laughs> Masquerading for OR. Yes. On our special background cycle. Oh, Who knows? It's the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio. Only time will tell. Uh, something, something, something. Yeah. I love happy ending. Man. Don't you? Don't you? You've been around too long when they memorized your outro. Yeah. <laughs>